This is episode 200 starring Daniel Timothy O'Neill of the dang apostrophe who sits in for Hotshot Scott. It's not starring. I'm the I'm the I'm the I'm the I'm the the triple A call up. I'm I'm Dylan. No. No, I'm Dylan Moore. Absolutely Scott, not. <laughs> Scott, Hotshot Scott was scratched uh, <laughs> minutes before the 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 sold out series against the division leading Houston Astros, and Dylan Moore went running out into center field. He's got a fair excuse. Do you know his excuse for not being? I mean, this is episode 200. There's supposed to be some sort of pageantry about this show, and I don't even know why. Because when you count the the P shows, we've done 400 more. We've done probably six hundred, probably five or six hundred shows by now. Good lord! But he's got Hotshot does have a fair reason. Do you know the story? I, I've heard it's because his daughter is running roughshod over the young ladies <laughs> from Wyoming. Well, not just Wyoming. Hopefully, the entire Northwest. In fact, I'll have you know that after their this is the Little League. This is the softball equivalent of the Little League World Series of the boys. They're twelve. Piper Soden is the catcher. She hit sixth on ESPN Plus last night. They beat they beat Wyoming 15 to nothing. It mercy looks rule. like, yeah, mercy, mercy rule. rule. It looks they like. They called it off. They're like, call it off. Call it <laughs> off. It looks like, Daniel Timothy O'Neill, that it's, it's destined to be a Washington, Oregon, Northwest regional title game for the for the opportunity to go to the Little League Softball World Series, which brings back Oregon versus Washington again. And I don't know that even after 25 years here or more that I quite understand it goes beyond, you know, Oregon against UW. It's there's a Portland Seattle thing for cities. There was a Blazers Sonics thing. Well, what's the issue? Can you explain it to me in in ten words or less? <laughs> our mountain is taller than their mountain. Uh huh. Who's our? Are you? Are you? What team do you play for? Oh, Mitch. Come on, you grew up in Oregon, though. Yeah, but I left as soon as I I could. <laughs> <laughs> the possibilities of me ever living there again were were between slim and none when I when I when oh, I, I uh, when I started okay, walking. No, so I am no. I am absolutely. You're all Washington now. Yes, one hundred percent. Our mountain is taller. We have Microsoft, Amazon. They have the company that makes the Leatherman tool. I believe. <laughs> I believe their biggest employer, I know I don't know if it it was Intel because they got a bunch of server farms that they operate over by the Dow's. Um yeah, I I don't I don't know if there's much like they're big they can't pump their own gas. I, I mean that's troubling. Am, to am I right of. to to gather that Portland people have kind of a problem with Seattle people? Well, it's just a little man's complex. Like it's exactly how your little brother tends to feel about you, which is that you you wish the best for him. Like I don't have any negative sort of feelings toward like I hope Portland does well. I just yeah. know they'll never do as well as Seattle does. Well, I, it's just just the, the way, way it goes. goes. It's just the way it goes. And I looked it's because I thought, yes, I thought as I was doping out the uh, the 12 year old 
softball little league regional matchup. <laughs> You're doing your work. You're I was diligence. Yes. Cause I wondered, cause if, if it was, if it was an Oregon team from East of the mountains, yeah, I've, I've got a soft spot in my heart for the Eastern oh, portion yeah, of, of Oregon. I don't know. I don't even know and where it, Eastern Oregon is. So I, can't. Oh, it's on the other side of the mountains. Like okay. the, it's this, it's a similar dynamic. It's a little uh, bend is over there, which is a lovely place. Yeah. The, it, Hermiston. The Oregon team is from Hermiston, where is which that? is the, no. the West side. I believe we don't like them. Nah, we don't like there's, them. there's nothing. There's nothing appealing about that. Well, here we are. Episode 200. This is kind of our bullpen session segment. We haven't officially, we haven't officially begun the show yet, Danny. We kind of warm up. So I want to get you warm and lathered up. This is different than the P shows that we do for the patrons every single week. This yep. is, this is the big time. That's triple a. This is the big time. So I hope you're up oh, to the really? task. Wait. <laughs> See, now I thought I was part of the heavy hitters that came in with the <laughs> yes, P-Shows. Yeah, I, I, I thought back. I was part of the heavy hitters. My, my understanding is this is a little more general interest. Like we have a broader reach here. Yeah. Uh, you, 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 you do interviews with compelling. I hope. So even human interest applicant, like real opportunities to touch and move people. It's, it's less of the nuts and bolts of Seattle sports and more of the, the bigger picture of life. Right. Which brings added responsibility. Added power. culpability. There's a lot of power here. You gotta, you've gotta be, you gotta rise oh, no. to the occasion. Me, Daniel Timothy. <laughs> I'm O'Neal. just, I'm, I'm filling in, and then you're gonna go back to Big Hot Shot Scott next, unless, unless Young Piper slugs her way all the way to the World Series, oh, and then you are. might be, going. you They're might heading. be, you might be out, out, uh, uh, a co-host for a significant chunk of time. Mitch Unfiltered is available on all major podcast platforms. I was told by the consultant when I started in November of 2018. She said. Mitch, you have to do this every show. You're going to get bored of it. The longer the podcast runs, you're going to think you don't have to do it anymore, but you have to do it. So bear with me. We really need to be rated and reviewed on all Apple podcast platforms. So if you're listening and you're enjoying, give us a five-star rating and tell us how you enjoy it via podcast, via Apple podcast platform. And it really helps booking guests because you'd be surprised at how many PR people and SIDs and agents, they go look at these re- ratings and reviews. How many people are reviewing this show? What are they saying about this show? How many stars? Well, let me see what kind of show they have before I decide whether my client can go be a guest on that show. So it helps, people, if you rate us and review us on Apple Podcasts. You can also become a Mitch Unfiltered patron. How can you hear Daniel Timothy O'Neill of the Dang Apostrophe every week? Every week we do about a 30, 35 minute show, but you got to be a Mitch Unfiltered patron at $5 a month. You go to MitchUnfiltered.com to become a patron. But I always say on these shows, Danny, if the $5 is prohibitive for some reason in your world, and I've got people out there that want to hear more of Mitch, I don't know why you would, but want to hear Danny, want to hear Slickhawk, want to hear the patron shows, but are uncomfortable forever, forever reason, $5 a month. The point is not for less people to listen. Just write me at Mitch at MitchUnfiltered.com and say, hey, I can't do $5 a month, but I love it. And I'll make it I'll make it happen for you. That's what I like to offer. He's like Santa Mitch. <laughs> Comes on through. He's got something for your stocking if you need that. So while we're warming up, I've got to give you my random topic of the day. There's going to be a lot of topics on this show. We're going to go into segment one with the nuts and bolts, as you would call it, okay? But when we get to the other stuff segment, I've got, like, tons of 
crap to throw at you and see what sticks on Daniel. I've got a number of little interesting stuff, but I've, I always seem to start with something random in the tease section. And so I tell you that this summer I have been swimming a lot. Ooh. Where'd you go swimming at? Well, I go swimming. We have a pool in our neighborhood, uh-huh. and I swim laps. I'm, I'm kind of fighting a little old man bad back syndrome the yeah. last couple of years. And when I get on the treadmill, when I get off, I'm in a lot of uh, soreness and pain. And when I play golf and I walk, I'm in a little. So I found that swimming laps this summer eases whatever comes about on the back. And I swim up and down and up and down in one of these Olympic-style pools. Hold, please. Yes. Do you do a kick turn? I don't know what I do. I don't know what you would call no, no, I like, do. do. I you, do an do old you, man overbite no, turn. Come on. No, no. Do you do, do you swing your legs up above and then push off? Or do you touch with your hand and I then start going the other hand, way? touch with my hand. I go the other way. Oh, oh come on, no, Mitch. I'm I'm wanna, a, I want to see kick turn. I, I want to see like the <laughs> torpedo. You remember him? Like, let's oh, go. Sure. Sure, I remember him. Um, I, I've never, honest to God, even in my youth, I've never been in a swimming race in my life. So I don't, even, I don't even know how to swim, but I swim. And I go up and back, and I know in my mind that I want to swim X amount of time, and I know how many laps. I don't want to look at the, look at the clock with my goggles on. I know exactly how long it takes me to swim a certain amount of laps. But I find it hard. You're going to find that make this crazy. I find it difficult to keep track. Yeah. Of how many I've, it shouldn't be that hard. Two, four, six, eight, but somehow I lose track in the 90 seconds or whatever it takes for me to go up and back. So what I do is, it's a long story, not particularly interesting. I use baseball and football and basketball players who wore the number. Really? And it and it kind of and I think about them and it's the same guys every day. I mean, I don't I don't reinvent. It's always Derek Jeter, number two or Brett Favre, uh-huh. number four or whatever. But there are these even numbers that come about on the way to 50. I swing. Sw- I swim 50 laps that come about. And I'm like, I don't know anybody that wore that number. And twenty six. I get, I get that Daryl Strawberry, I think, was 18 in his high because I, I use right. him. I use him on 18. I think he might have been 26 with the Dodgers later in his career, but he, I think he no, was I, 18. Yeah, you're right. He is 18. So I get to, you know, I do Dwight Gooden at 16. I do Daryl Strawberry at 18. I do Barry Sanders at 20. I've got Bob Hayes, Mercury Morris and Emmett Smith. I think about at 22. I get junior at 24. And then I get to 26 and I'm like, who the, and I'm swimming with my goggles trying to figure out. And the only guy I remember for whatever reason, I don't look it up on the internet. The guy that I remember wearing 26 is Kenny Hamlin of your Seattle Seahawks. He did wear 26. I don't know why I even remember that he wore 26. Yep. Okay. Yes, he did. And every time I get to 26, what's actually between 24 and 26, the two laps where I'm trying to remember 26 is coming up next, I think about Ken Hamlin and I inevitably ask myself, what happened that night? Because I don't even feel like 20 years later or however many years later it is, I don't even feel like we ever really found out. They kept that a pretty good see. I mean, we know about some stop sign or We know how, and you know, when I think of, when I'm swimming the laps and I'm thinking of Ken Hamlin, the visual that I have, I don't know that I've ever told you this before, 
When I was going to Detroit for the Super Bowl to cover it for KJR and do the shows from Detroit, I don't remember where I stopped. I'm going to guess Minneapolis. That might not be right. It might be Chicago. I don't know where I was. I stopped in between. And waiting for my connecting flight, Kenny Hamlin was sitting. He wasn't even on the team plane. He was sitting in, a, in, a, in an airport, in a random Midwest airport with me, waiting for a connection flight to the Super Bowl in Detroit. And I remember thinking how sad that was, that this is where we are now with Ken Hamlin, who was at one time, he was like a folk hero when he knocked who, Dante Stallworth's Stallworth. helmet. Yeah, he was like, like a champagne cork rocketing up into the right. stratosphere. And so you cover, I mean, I don't know if you covered him at that exact point, but you were very close to the Seahawks. I thought on my last time in the pool, I was like, you know what? I'm going to ask Danny. Maybe he can tell us. Maybe somebody can finally tell us what happened that night that he got so terribly hurt. Do you know? So, yeah, I, I wrote a lot about it. I actually spent a couple weeks doing it. I dug into it a couple years later. Um, to try and answer it more definitively. So the parts that I know were it was at a place called Larry's and in Belltown Hamlin, Ken Hamlin there in Pioneer Square. Pioneer they Square. Yeah, they destroyed the Houston Texans that night. And Mike Holmgren, when he was kind of saying the, the, his last words to the team after the game in the locker room was saying, I think he made a comment of you can go out and have one chocolate milk, but just one and then make sure you get home. <laughs> I love that. <laughs> yeah. And Ken was out after the game. And that's that was a a bar that had a reputation as they had a lot of drink night specials. It was it was a place that was considered fairly rowdy. Um, and I remember talking to the guys at a bar next door where like they very frequently end up kind of having to having to throw people out. Um, the best explanation that I got was that something happened. Something somebody said something to Ken Hamlin in the bar about the lady he was with. Was he with any teammates, any other Seahawks players or no? I'm Yes. So I know I know one of the guys, Rocky Bernard, ran out onto the street. That was after Ken had been knocked out. Okay. Um, and Rocky Bernard came because he, he did he got knocked out in the street. Ken. Okay. Did. So somebody says something about his his the woman his that girlfriend. he was with, his girlfriend, yes. or the, the, yeah, the, yeah, the the lady that's with him. Yes. There is a bit of an argument, and then Ken Hamlin's brother, who was also there, ended up getting into a fight in which it appeared that there were a couple people punching him. And at that point, Ken ran to try and get to his brother. So I don't know. Outside. Yes. And at that point, Ken's leaving the bar and he sees his brother being punched, being hit in a fight. And he goes and runs to try and, 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 get to his brother and as he's running he was punched um there's it's not clear it's not for sure that he was hit with a stop sign and and what it was is they had these little temporary they were temporary no parking signs because in the video because there's surveillance video out there and I watched the surveillance video and at one point you see a really big dude 
who walks by holding one of these temporary no parking signs in his hand, kind of like he's he's walking back as as if I mean, that's it's a street sign like he's not supposed to be carrying this sure, around. Sure. I don't know if Ken was struck with that. Um, the the person who was identified as having punched him. And then this is where it gets weird was a guy named um, punch. That, that punched his, or hit with the sign, which co- one? Correct, and that's it's unclear. The, I talked to this guy's brother. Terrell Milam is identified was identified by people as the guy who punched Ken, or hit Ken. His brother told me that he just punched him. This is Terrell Milam's brother, uh-huh. and there was never a definitive sort of determination of whether he what he was hit with, to the best of my knowledge, only that he was hit. And I don't think anybody has said that it was like that. Ken probably did not see the guy who hit him. Um, and and at that point, Ken is knocked out. One punch. That's that's how it's been described. A one yeah. punch. Yes. So how does the rumor? Is it just rumor, urban myth that there was a sign or a stop sign? How did that get Nobody's floated quite- out there? Well, there's because there's the guy in the video, and I've seen the video of it of the guy carrying the sign. And and the actual attack on Ken did not happen. I haven't ever seen any video of it. So so people don't know. There's a lot. There's four or five different people that were involved in a couple of different skirmishes that are right outside of there. And what we know is that Ken was knocked out. One of the people that was involved in one of these skirmishes that's that's involved out there was carrying a street sign around. Um. I don't know how how whether Ken was hit after he was knocked out. After he's down, yeah. And I've heard people say somebody hit him with the sign after, after. he was down. But there was I, so much damage. Yeah. It was more skull, than just a concussion, right? He had a fracture. He had a skull fracture. Skull he had a skull fracture. fracture. It could have been when he hit the pavement. Could have been yeah. a lot of different things. We don't know. And I, I, I know that at one point, multiple people told me that somebody pulled out a gun. Oh. And then... Rocky Bernard had run out. If there's a sort of hero in the story, it was Rocky who ran out and got everyone off of Ken. And and it and and it, at that point, the the fight stopped. And then Ken was taken to the hospital that night. Um, the really weird part of the story is that Terrell Milam, who has been identified by people as the person who hit Ken. So he was in a halfway house. Like he was not supposed to be out that night. He was under like super, like he was supposed to be in, in, in a, in a correctional facility, Mm. like not, not a full on jail. He, He was out there that night. He ended up later that night, that same night, this fight happens. He got shot and killed. And several years later, there was an explanation of how that happened. Um, and it was identified that he ended up getting a ride away from Pioneer Square with someone who this guy had done something to that person's cousin. Wow. And so then he was then shot. But it was an exceptionally weird. So within, because the the, this, the chain of events, because I talked to this guy, Terrell Milam's brother. It was either the, day after or two days later it the the actual fight happened because there was some feeling on their part that the fight had something to do with why this guy got killed 
Oh. Which was untrue. Like there's no, and, and in fact, what came out several years later was that the, the homicide it happened. And I think he got, I think his body got left like at Seward Park, but it was an exceptionally weird story. Now, Ken did not play the rest of that year. Um, he was, he was paid his entire salary because there was a question of like non-football injury. Um, would, would he be getting it? And he was, he was clearly identified by police as a victim um, uh, of this attack. He ended up coming back and playing the next year. And I, and I remember hearing like when his agent told me that, and then there was a fair amount of skepticism on the part of the Seahawks about like what it would go. Like Tim Ruskell was worried about whether or not he would actually be cleared to play football. He was, he played and he had a really good year. And then oh. he signed with the Dallas Cowboys after that. Yes. And had a good enough year with the Cowboys that they put the franchise tag on him. So he actually came, came back, back, came back and, and had a surprising and effective career. But yeah, that remains just one of the weirdest. Am it's, I am I right when I say it's it was shrouded forever and ever in mystery? Still is. We it, don't really like it's it, it was 2005, right? Two, 2005. It 2005. Happens. You learn about every everything comes out eventually. You get details of every little thing, every nook and cranny. And yet this, for some reason, kind of remained hush-hush for the longest time. Forever. It never... I don't have a great explanation. Like what I told you, and I've worked pretty hard at it. Like I've talked to... I went to and talked to a bouncer one night that was that was there who, who had seen it. I talked to, talked to the, the murder victim's brother. I've Crazy. looked through all sorts of stuff. Yeah. Mm. Well, I don't know why we're starting episode 200 or... There you go, 26. You got a 26. There you go. We're warming up in the T section with a a random Ken Hamlin reference. Guests on this episode, would you like to know what... What's going to be heard when you're not in the segments or do you not care about the segments? Of course I care. I want to hear. Okay. Andrew Heck is the North Allegheny High School baseball coach. Now, why in the world, North Allegheny, Pennsylvania, near Pittsburgh, would we have the high school baseball coach? Well, the Mariners drafted 21st overall, a shortstop from North Allegheny High School named Cole Young. He was the first shortstop that the Mariners drafted that high out of high school since a guy named Alex Rodriguez many years earlier. So... We're having this high school coach on, and then a guy named Jim Callis in the same segment. Do you know Jim at all? Jim is a Major League Baseball kind of a prospect whiz, isn't he? MLB.com. He's going to tell us about all the guys that they drafted. Is it a good class? Is it an okay class? What about, you know, how the Mariners have had the number one farm system by a lot of accounts recently, but they've graduated a lot of guys to the big leagues like Kirby and and Gilbert and Julio and Kelnick. Do they still have one of the top farm systems or have they dropped since all those guys graduated? The big- So, well, that's segment one. That's the interview segment one, both the high school coach and Jim Callis about the Mariners prospects. Okay. Sounds fantastic. Seg- Allegheny. Allegheny has quite an athletic reputation. That's a football powerhouse. I think Revis. Don't tell Andrew Heck that. He doesn't want to hear about the football powerhouse. He thinks- well, no, he's going to say he's going to say we're raising the level. Rising tide lifts all boats, Mitch. <laughs> he's going to tell you that he thinks baseball's been overrated over the Heck yeah. He's you gonna, look at you look at the tell, trends he, around there. He's going to tell you about Stan the Man Musual being from there. He's what from is, Allegheny. He's from that the the Pittsburgh area. No kidding. Yeah. And then uh, interview segment number two, Danny, U.S. Army veteran Randy Shack who suffered a spinal cord injury while representing our 
our nation in Iraq in 2007 and how golf saved his life. It's kind of a super inspirational interview. I think you'll find a lot of good feelings from Randy in segment two of the interviews. And then segment three is a guy named Mike Tolan, who's the co-executive producer with Spike Lee of the new seven-part ESPN documentary on Derek Jeter. He's also the Emmy Award-winning executive producer of that Jordan last, what do they call it, last dance Mm -hmm. during the pandemic, the last dance series. Mike Tolan will rejoin us. He's been on the show before. He'll tell us why he thinks... And I'll argue with him a little bit. I'll say, you know, and I think of Derek Jeter, I think boring. He never let us in. And he said, exactly. He finally, in this series of seven-part documentary, he finally lets us in behind the wall. So the director of that of that series, of the captain, is one of my favorites. He's absolutely How do you fantastic. know him? Because we talk a lot about him. I had never heard about him. Randy Spike Wilkins. Lee, yeah, Randy Wilkins. Spike Lee p- handpicked him. He's like his protege, right? Yeah, he really likes him. Uh, I stalked him on Twitter, Mitch, in- until I got him to follow me. Yeah, yeah <laughs> I did. It's true. <laughs> yeah. No, I love his work. I think he's absolutely fantastic. I had, I actually, it might've been the thing that got him to follow me was I was like, I had zero interest in a Derek Jeter documentary until I saw you were doing it. <laughs> You said that? <laughs> yeah, because I don't. I don't care about Derek Jeter. Like, I don't. I, I really, I, he's great, but he would not be nearly what he is if he wasn't a Yankee, right? Like, it's it's that special, and he embodied what it means to be a Yankee, and I find all of that stuff obnoxious. Overrated. Overrated. I love Randy Wilkins. And as soon as I saw that he was doing it, I was like, I can't wait to watch it. <laughs> so segment one will be you and me. We'll talk about the Mariners who have now are now the coldest team in Michigan. We'll talk about Julio. We'll talk about Juan Soto. We'll talk about the Houston Astros being our daddies. (laughs) And then I'll do this. Then we'll do the, uh, the interview segments and then we'll come back you and me for what I call the other stuff segment where I throw a bunch of shit at you and see what sticks. Okay. Can I I fire something back? Yes, please, please. Good, good. But Danny, we don't begin episode 200 or any other show without talking a little bit about our partners that make Mitch Unfiltered possible, like Zeke's Pizza. The Levy family loves themselves. Some Zeke's had some people over for the MLB All-Star game. Two large pies and a chopped salad later, delivered right to our door via the Zeke's Pizza app. New locations popping up all over the place, like Terrace Station in Mount Lake Terrace. Zeke's Pizza, homegrown in the Northwest. Daniel's Broiler who just redid the patio at the Lake Union location. Awesome setting for a summer special occasion. The patio overlooking the world in Bellevue, Lake Washington at Leshy. It's not just the steaks that makes Daniels a world-class steakhouse. I fully understand that we're not thinking about staying warm in the winter when it's so beautiful outside, but the perfect time to think about a new fireplace is actually right now. Begin your search with John Waterstrat and Fireside Home Solutions. They're amazing. They're such great partners of Mitch Unfiltered. Begin your search for a new fireplace unit at firesidehomesolutions.com. The Kirkland Office of Cross Country Mortgage. It's official. After the second round improvement, the team of Jordan Flowers and Sidney Rice installed as the Vegas betting favorite for the 2023 Aldera member member. Jordan's cross country team is already the best for mortgage assistance with rental property purchases, second homes, and much more. Seven minutes is all you need 
with the lead man, Jordan Flowers, 425-890-2957. An evergreen golf call, tax advisors, certified financial planners, experienced portfolio managers working together to bring retirement planning, taxes, and investments under one roof. Evergreengk.com, more than just a financial advisor. Evergreen is everything wealth. This is episode 200 of Mitch Unfiltered, and it begins right now. Unfiltered. It drives me batty that we're paying guys $25, $26 million and asking them to go give us six innings. <laughs> I can't get I can't get my arms around that being a the Alta Cocker that I am. Unfiltered. I'm really happy to see him smile and show that youthful exuberance to the nation. I'm glad he's yes. gonna be on national TV so that everybody around the baseball world can see what we've been seeing since he, he came up. Mitch is unfiltered. Episode 200 is now Daniel Timothy O'Neill officially underway. The, the warm-up session is over. I follow you on Twitter. I read the dang apostrophe. I want to get to the Mariners. We got to get to the Mariners. But what adjective would you use to describe your personality on Twitter and the dust-ups and the... You're kind of frisky. You're kind of... Yeah, I'm, com- I'm combative. You're spunky. You're spunky yeah. on Twitter, aren't you? I would agree. Yeah, yeah, I'm I'm combative. I don't mind going at people. Like, that's that's definitely true. Sometimes I can't tell, though, whether these little dust-ups are real or they're tongue-in-cheek. I'll give you an example. Mm-hmm. You and the go-to guy, Jim Moore. Now, I can't imagine <laughs> a world... I, I can imagine a world where you and Dave Softy Mahler don't get along. I can't imagine a world where scribes Jim Moore and Danny O'Neill legitimately don't get along. What what's what is that that I'm following on Twitter? Is that real or is that Memorex or what is that, Danny? Well, what do you mean? It just seems like there's a problem between you two. <laughs> I don't know. Um, <laughs> five years ago, five years ago that I would have been very mad. Five years ago, I would have been really mad. In fact, five years ago, I did get mad at Jim. Oh. And was this before or after Softy? Uh, that would have been after Softy. After Softy, but maybe before the my the issue with Softy really kind of came to a head. Okay. Although I, I will clarify, uh, I texted or no, I left a voicemail for Softy a couple weeks ago. He texted me back. We're all good now. One voicemail. Undid everything? Sure. Really? I, I, yeah, I told what, him, I was ma- like, hey, what hey, made, hey, what, made, what made you want to, what, what prompted you to call Softy and leave him a, a voice? Well, his, his, his dad's sick. There's a oh, lot of I concern about his dad and his mom had COVID. And so I reached out to him to let him know that I was thinking about him. And um, I've gone through kind of having health difficulties with both my parents to say if there's anything out. And David, right before I moved to New York, he had apologized to me and I'd, I'd accepted it, but I'd kind of been standoffish about it. I was kind of like, yeah, okay, whatever. Like that sort of, and, and I'm, I'm over it. Okay, like I, 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 I fully accept his apology good. and realized that good. like I was holding on to some bitterness out of my own sort of sense of being self-righteous as opposed to just saying, Hey, things happen and we should move on. So, um, so, so yeah, so I, this is older and wiser and kind of, and (laughs) in, in, in conjunction with that five years ago, I would have been, I would have been very mad at Jim over what happened last week. Um, and, but 
now I made a decision five years ago that Jim was not going to get me mad anymore. And if I chose to continue to be friends with him, I would just accept that every so often he behaves like a complete and total ass <laughs> and not, not get, not get mad. What happened? Well, you want to so, you want to give me examples of him? I mean, I thought that everybody loves Jim Moore. I don't know. Maybe I'm wrong about that. Well, I don't know. Jim everybody Moore. does love Jim Moore, <laughs> and everybody that's ever worked with Jim or yeah. in in conjunction with Jim for any extended period of time will have been enraged by him. <laughs> like there's a, and I've come to see that that's that sort of. Uh, a tax or that's just the price you pay. It's the cost of doing business yeah, with Jim Moore. Okay. Yes. That you have to accept certain things. Yes. Um, I believe, I believe last week we talked about the, about my pimples and my problem with pimples. That would be one ninety nine P yes. For the patients. Yeah. Well, you can, you can tell me like your general opinion. I, I, I started out the, the basic Genesis of what I wrote and, and talking about it was that, it's kind of funny to me that as I get older and start to have the afflictions that come with being middle-aged and beyond, such as gray nose hairs, crazy yeah. eyebrow hairs, my body going haywire, that I'm still dealing with pimples. And that I think that's kind of odd. And not only that, but New York seems to have a pharmacy on every corner, yet I have a really it's really hard to get prescriptions. So it was just a, oh, this might be funny to write about. Yeah. And maybe it is, maybe it isn't. And it, it certainly wouldn't be the first time that something that I thought was funny <laughs> didn't turn out to be funny. Uh, by the or, way, I'm a, or, I'm a pro at that. <laughs> yeah, right. Like you try it and it, it doesn't work. Oh. Um, so this is, so this is, uh, Jim Moore really didn't like it. Really? Like Jim, Jim, Jim Moore really didn't like it. And here was how he let me know. First was a, a tweet in which Jim said, Finally, a story about adults getting pimples, exclamation point. I've been waiting for years, maybe even decades, for a story about this gigantic issue. Thanks, Danny. I'll become a subscriber now. Now, that's the first you, you, one. You read that in a tone mm -hmm. that he may say if he were with us, that's not the tone with which that I wrote it. I was giggling as I wrote it, not like being piercing as Danny just delivered it. Okay, possible. But okay. He followed it up by saying, ever since I turned 18 and became an adult and got a pimple, I thought, man, I got to write about this, but never did. Glad you followed through with it. I'm sure you'll win an Edward R. Murrow Award for it, oh, exclamation geez. point. Jeez. Okay? So that's the second one. <laughs> I, I'm sorry. I'm, uh, am I not supposed to laugh? You're giving me no, a look. No, you should. You're giving me a it's, look. Okay, it's, go ahead. It's hilarious. Go ahead. And then, because Jim, Jim has a radio show now, Jim Jim went on the radio show and explained, first of all, he explained that he was almost late because he was giving me a hard time on Twitter. And then he said uh, that he, he was, he said that he was writing today, an adult who gets pimples. I haven't read the story yet, but the headline was like how it's not cool when you're an adult, when you get pimples. So I think Danny back in New York probably has too much time on his hands. Honest to God, who would want to read that? I mean, I was just telling him, yeah, hey, let me click on that. I'm an adult who gets pimples and then having a hard time going to a pharmacy in New York or whatever. I'm like, yeah, boy, can't re wait to read that, Danny. Nope. Good, good stuff there. Jesus. Come on, man. That was on the radio show. That's on his radio show. Transcribed by 
Me. <laughs> Someone texted me. Someone texted it to me. And like I said, five years ago, I would have gotten mad about it. Five years ago, I would have said, I would have looked at it and I would have said that not only has Jim done this, and he talked about it again the next day, apparently. Um, but I think it's a total of six times now. He's tweeted at me, basically making fun of the idea that he would subscribe well, to the newsletter, which I've never asked him to subscribe for at all. Oh. And in fact, I would say that most of my friends do not subscribe to my newsletter. Okay. Like I've never asked any my of them to do My hands are raised. My hands are raised as the hosts of Mitch Unfiltered. My name is on the marquee. My hand is raised. Again, I don't, I, I'm not a Jim Moore apologist, <laughs> but I have to ask the question because I know the way I think of sometimes helping others by promoting. There's alternative ways of, of helping a friend promote something that they're working on. And mm -hmm. sometimes I might go the route of poking fun, thinking, OK, here's what I'm really doing. I'm saying subscribe to Danny O'Neill's The Dang Apostrophe without saying, hey, my name is Mitch Levy and I'm asking you to subscribe. Let me do it in a more creative way by jabbing with him and, and bringing the dang apostrophe to the light. There's no chance that Jim Moore is doing just that, trying to help you in an alternative way and manner. How much are you charging for your drivel? That was what he tweeted on June 4th. The next one, let's see. Not sure I had to pay because I had to pay five bucks to find out. That was his response to a tweet I had about who won Sunday's fight uh, between the, the angels. Uh, I used to get paid to listen to you and watch you for three hours a day for about five years. So why would I pay to listen to you or see your raggedy ass hair now? Uh, that was June 30th. So it's possible he is trying to do a solid by promoting me. And that's it's great. It's also possible that he thinks it's really stupid that anybody would pay and he's got every right to make fun of it. I would say that he's the only person I know that had done that. And like I said, if it was five years ago, I would I would think back to myself and I would say, hmm. When Jim lost his job at the Seattle Post Intelligencer because the newspaper stopped publishing, I remember that he had a blog and he would email me links to his blog and he would say, hey, trying to start this thing, if you could link to it, it would help me out. Gotcha. And I don't think, I'm not sure exactly what I did. I know that I had some questions because he tended to put pictures of, of scantily clad women. I was, I was like, should I really link to that off of the Seattle Times? Blog? I know I never went on the Seattle Times blog and pointed out that, oh, the, the guy I used to work with at the PI is doing this and don't bother clicking on it. And and I'm also I don't go on his Twitter feed and find things that I don't like that he tweets about and respond. To. But again, like this is this is applying like logic and reason to Jim Moore, which is something that just doesn't work because then you end up finding yourself defending the validity of a story about pimples when you're like, <laughs> hey, I was just trying. To. So so this is what, what you have to do is you have to understand that Jim is a person who. He's for the most most of the time, he's very fun to work around and he's a really good dad. He loves his kids, his daughter, Brooke, who I believe is, is, is now married. He's got two twins who just graduated high school like he's a great dad. He's a really kind hearted guy. And you just have to accept that every so often. And I don't know why it is. He's incredibly rude and abrasive and says things that are 
they, I wouldn't let any of my other friends talk to me that way as Jim does. And so you just have to accept it. Mm -hmm. Like, okay, the overall trade-off is worth it. It's the cost of doing business with Jim. So I'm not mad at Jim. In fact, I mean, this is Jim's act. This is what Jim does. It's what he's done for however many years he's worked in this market. And it's why Richard Sherman and Michael Bennett wanted to like holler at him. Bennett was screaming. Like everybody just, you periodically get mad, except I don't get mad anymore. Well, I want to say good for you. Was, was, that, too much, say, no, was that too no, much information? Not too much. People probably <laughs> skipped forward through it. But I want to say good for you. But as you and I did a segment on my my concern of where did you do you start? Yeah. <laughs> I'll give you another one. Nobody says good for you anymore. They say good on you. And I good don't you. I don't know again. What where did that happen? When? Who sent the memo that it's not good for you anymore? It's good on you. I think they mean different things. Okay, but still, nobody said good on you when I was growing up. Nobody said good on you when I was in college or or working in D.C. or for the first 20 years of my life in Seattle. But all of a sudden, like Joe Fan, my buddy, he always says good on you. Good on you. I don't know what that is. That almost sounds dismissive and and like I should take an insult to that. Good for you is definitely <laughs> dismissive, isn't it? Oh, good for you. Like oh, that's uh, definitely. I think maybe half the time. Like if, I would have said good for you with the way you're handling the gym more, but I would not have meant it in a dismissive way. So maybe I'm just too old. To understand. Can we get to the Mariners? Can we, do we want to get to the to? Mariners? Do we have to? Do we want to talk about the Mariners who come out of the all-star break? And the first thing you hear is he's a late, a late scratch. He's got a sore wrist from the, uh, from the all-star activities or hand or whatever it is, our guy Julio's not going to play. He doesn't even play in the whole series. They're not hosting. They, they have all kinds of momentum, and the Astros do exactly what they do. They come in here, and it's, it's not even particularly competitive. The Mariners didn't hold a lead. Any of the... <laughs> what the hell? In the, any Are of we the done they, now? Is they, it over? They, 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 they did not hold a lead. Is Christmas over? It was... It felt like they got pantsed. <laughs> like that's kind of what it was like. We are the Mariners. We're all sold out. And Houston just came in and yanked yanked their trousers down. Yes. It was oh. it, it was the most Mariners weekend ever. God. <laughs> what the hell, Danny? It's if you can detach yourself from the actual pain. It's funny. <laughs> it's not funny. It's funny. <laughs> it's not funny. Yeah. It's not funny. What's funny? It's, it's not funny. It's not, it's not funny. On, on, Monday, said, yes, on Monday, yes. Julio Rodriguez. Yes, I, I, I want to go there. I want to go there. Kids, what? He hit 63 home, home runs in the first two rounds. Yes, he did. He sets a record. Yeah, and you know what Mitch Levy was doing as I as I sat on the couch? What do you think I was doing as I sat on the couch with my, with my boys watching the home run derby and kind of reveling in the fact that he was grabbing the national spotlight? He's a what, star. What, what He's was, announced what, himself. No, no, no. What was naysayer? What was eternal pessimist Mitch <laughs> Levy? He was going to hurt I? himself. I was, I was sitting there and I even tweeted this you can go back to my timeline I even tweeted this that I was sitting there convincing myself 
that this is not going to hurt his swing because he swings out of his shoes anyway. He, this is the way he swings in real life. In fact, you could make an argument that he wasn't swinging as hard in the home run derby as he swings when he's in the in the batter's box from the Mariners to a regular season game. So I was sitting there and both half enjoying it and half trying to convince myself, okay, there's going to be no repercussions to this energy that he's expending, the sweat that's coming out of him, the 63 home runs, and then as sure as you and I, as sure as you have pimples, Danny, he scratched from the first three games. <laughs> it's not only that. Didn't he go out to catch the warm-up pitch? I don't I don't I know. Think, Did he? I think he caught God. I think he caught the, first the ceremonial pitch? first pitch. And then they God. scratched him. <laughs> Why are you laughing? Because it's funny, it's man. It's not funny. This it's, is not funny. It's so funny. This is not like, funny. He he arrives. He arrives. Like, he is the story coming out of the All-Star break. And you're kind of th- sitting there thinking, oh, I think the Mariners, and I still think they should trade for Juan Soto. In fact, I think it more after this series that, yeah. that, than I had. that you coming out of it. He's made his name. He was the rookie. He was the guy everybody was talking about. The Mariners have a 14 game win streak. This is, this is going to be the weekend they're selling out. It's the Houston Astros are coming to town. It's finally the reckoning. Julio Rodriguez gets scratched minutes before the start of the first game. Jose Altuve homers on the third pitch. He sees the Mariners never hold the lead the entire series and get their asses whooped. We talked about how close they were to what having an outfield of uh, Winker, Julio Rodriguez, Hanniger with Kyle Lewis. Yes, as as like the the really like that's yes. the, and by the end of the weekend <laughs> we watching out there. It's like Dylan Moore. Winker left today's game after he collided with the uh, w- w- with the infielder. Right, I think he was out of there. So that means Sam Haggerty is out there playing. Like th- it's just a disaster, just an absolute disaster. So why don't you? Mariner- so why don't you just say that we started the weekend wondering if they should acquire Juan Soto, and we ended the weekend asking who they should sell off before no, no. trading them? <laughs> no, no, no. They, they still need to trade for. If Soto's out there, I'm actually kind of optimistic. I think there's a shot at Soto. Still. No, there's we'll no see. shot at Soto. No, no shot at Soto. Why not? It can't happen. Sure it can. The national. Here's my here's my thought on Soto. The Nationals. Here's what we know for sure. The Nationals are going to take the best package of young players that they get offered. Yes. It makes no sense, even though they've got a lot of players that the Mariners would offer the best package because The best package of players will obviously, to me anyway, be offered by a team whose ownership knows for sure that they have unlimited amounts of money and they're willing to spend unlimited amounts of money to keep Soto there more than the two and a half years. Now you might I, you might be able to convince you Mitch. might be able to convince me that Stanton and the Mariners ownership has unlimited amounts of money. You probably wouldn't be able to convince me of that, but you could. But the one thing you'll never convince me of is that they're going to be willing with any player to just give him whatever Scott Boris wants. And therefore, I believe that because of that, it will be a team that's ready to give him $600 million, no problem, that will offer the best package of prospects to the Nationals. 
That's all I, I think. Reasonable. To me, it's it's unreasonable to think that the Mariners would really be in the Juan Soto sweepstakes. Here's why I think it is reasonable to believe that the Mariners are in it. Because all of those teams that are capable of spending that money, none of them have the caliber of prospects that the Mariners would be able to trade. The Mariners are in a position where they actually have some of the most ammunition. And I'm not going to try to convince you that Stanton either has the most money or certainly will spend it. Soto, you've got Soto for two and a half years. Like this isn't a rental. Like that's two and a half years. That's that's his prime. And if you're not, I don't, I'm not sure what the point of having a good farm system is. If you're not going to use it at this point to add to your major league product, because Juan Soto if they get Soto, I think they're making the playoffs this year. And I think that they're maybe getting over the hump next year or the year after that. I, I really, and I'm not even looking out beyond what it is beyond 2024. Like I'll just look at it for the next two and a half years. And as long as you're not giving up Julio Rodriguez and both Logan Gilbert and George Kirby, I'm not sure if there's many packages of prospects that you could put together that I'm going to say, no, absolutely don't do it. Juan Soto's a stud and he's 23. But what I didn't mention in my little soliloquy is this. By going out and giving up five incredible prospects, including, by the way, probably Logan Gilbert or George Kirby or both. They're going to want both. I don't think you can give both. But yeah. Here's here's what I didn't say, Danny, that I know they're thinking because I know the way they think over there. And if, if you tell me otherwise, I won't believe you. They're also thinking, okay, if we do this, and we give up five great prospects that could be stars someday for this guy. Then we put ourselves in a PR pickle in two and a half years. If we don't re-sign this guy after two and a half years, now, yeah, if we win a world championship, all will be forgiven and forgotten. But if we do anything less than win a world championship, and then the onus is on us, the Seattle Mariners, to give Scott Boris what he wants, this is not anything different than Russell Wilson in Denver. He's got them by the balls, and we've seen countless examples of this. Boris will have the Mariners completely by the balls because they've given up five prospects for two and a half years, as you point out. Now the onus is, God, if we don't do this, we are going to get crucified. And I don't think the Mariners' ownership want any part of being in that PR situation. That's a pickle come two and a half years from now. It is a pickle, and maybe that's part of why I want it to happen because I want maximum <laughs> pressure applied to them to feel that they need to give it. I, do I think the Mariners will do it? No. Partly they'll, for the reason be, you... Ju- they'll be a Dodgers. I, I know you say that the Mariners have the best prospects. There's got to be a Yankees or a Dodgers or some team like that that has some great prospects that know we're going to give the guy $600 million. Forget it. Whatever he wants, he can have. There's going to be a team like that. I can't get myself over the hump of being excited over the prospects. I think they should go after Mario Soto instead of Juan Soto. Do you remember Mario Soto? I do, from the Cincinnati Reds. (laughs) He might be able to help them in the rotation, I think. Underrated fastball. Uh, So here's, I think you're right. Like from a pragmatic and not what they should do, but what they will do. I think you're right. I think part of it is they don't want to put themselves in that situation where they're going to be leveraged 
and and feel that they're going to be shamed for not meeting the asking price for the player that they've traded for. I also think that Jerry Depoto's history is that he wants trades that he feels he wins. And you might say that that's like every GM wants that. I, I think that all things being equal, like Jerry, Jerry wants an edge in, in most deals. And I don't see him or haven't seen him making those kind of all-in pushes for one guy. Like that that hasn't been the history so far in the, in the trades he's made. It's usually been packages and different things that sort of mitigate some of the risk. I just, man, I'd like to I, I'd like to see the Mariners do something okay. aggressive. Okay. Like I I really I really would. And I think this weekend underscores it. They they need offense. They need bats. And I know that Jerry said that, hey, it's it's pitching that the, that is going to be their priority, but they're relying on some guys that haven't been healthy. If you watch Kyle Lewis this weekend and the way he runs, like, do you feel confident he's no. going to stay healthy no. for the second half of the season? Because I don't. You sure you want Soto more than Shohei? I saw that. <laughs> no, I'm not think, sure I, about I that. I think I want Shohei more yeah. than I want Soto. If you, if you He's older, that though. Choice. He's older, though. I, I'm still taking it, man, because that'd well, be so much fun. That's the guy that it, they should have gotten in the first place, right? I know. I know. It, Son of a so bitch. I, so I saw that. I saw if the Angels are going to trade him, I would say I would say I want Shohei more. But they're than not going to trade Soto. him. The Mariners. I would. I can't imagine it because I would say this for Shohei too. I would think that there's a shot that he signs long term in Seattle. Yeah, I do too. But he's only got a year and a half. I'm okay with that. I'm okay Instead with rolling that. I don't see a scenario where Soto signs long term in Seattle. Okay, like so I really, let me ask, and we got to finish segment one. So let me ask you this: Yes or no? The pro, the group of prospects that you're willing to give up for Soto because you get two and a half years of him, would you give up give up that exact same package for one and a half years of Shohei? No, I'd give up. I'd give up Kirby or Gilbert. I'd give up Kalinick. I probably would not want to include Noel V. Marte in there. Of course you wouldn't want to, but you might not be able to get it done with if, if, if it's about- if it's if it's Marte, Kirby, and Kelnick, and then some other guys that aren't his top, I'm thinking about it. I, I think I probably would pull the trigger, but I wouldn't feel great about that. Okay, that's segment one. Let me do the interviews. In fact, I've already done them, but let's play the interviews now. Okay, three good interviews. I think even you will like them if you listen. I don't know that Jim Moore will appreciate them. <laughs> And then the other stuff segment is where we throw different stuff out back and forth. We volley back and forth, but the rules are we can't spend too much time on any one subject. Otherwise I'll miss my golfing trip that I'm about to take. Okay. 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 Yes. Hey, it's time for a visit from Jordan flowers who leads the cross country mortgage team in Kirkland. How are you, Jay Flo? Hey, Mitch. I'm doing wonderful. Thank you. It's been a while. Yes, Good to be it back. Has. It's nice to have you back. With numbers skyrocketing, how can Jay Flo and his great Kirkland team help Mitch Unfiltered listeners these days? Yeah, it's a great question and one we're getting from clients also. Rates have been going up pretty sharply over the last couple of months, but we have started to see it level out. Rates actually kind of tick back down slightly. It is a great time for buyers to be buying. Even with the higher interest rates, it's actually providing a bit of an opportunity for buyers to not get into quite as many multiple offer competitive situations and wonderful time to be buying and getting that house you want and not getting in such competition and then just take care of it with the refinance with rates when they come back down. Jordan, tell me a little bit about buying rental properties and other unique programs that you guys offer at Cross Country Mortgage. 
Yeah, we are actually doing a lot with investment buyers right now, one to four unit properties. But we do also have a unique service coverage ratio program that allows you to not provide any income qualifying documents. We qualify off of the income the property itself produces. So we're just evaluating the collateral piece and if it's going to be a good investment for you. So Jordan, even with the numbers a little higher these days, you're still helping refinance clients pull cash out for various reasons. Yeah, yeah. Those rate term refinances that were just clogging up the system a year ago have mostly subsided here, but we are helping a lot of clients with cash out refinances, equity refinances to pay off higher interest rate debt, as well as pull that cash to buy that second home or investment property that they want to do and put that money they've earned in their house to work on more real estate and helping people build more wealth. So how do I reach you? If a Mitch Unfiltered listener has questions about what they just heard, where do we find Jordan Flowers? Yeah, same bat line, same bat channel, 425-890-2957. There you go, Jordan Flowers in Cross Country Mortgage, the Kirkland office. He's been an incredible partner. Mitch Unfiltered would not be possible without guys like Jordan Flowers. Unfiltered. With the 21st pick of the 2022 MLB Draft, the Seattle Mariners select Cole Young, a shortstop from North Allegheny High School in Wexford, Pennsylvania. Well, in the midst of this Mariners red-hot stretch to jump right in the middle of the playoff contention came the Major League Baseball Draft and a new group of names to add to what many believe is the number one farm system in the sport. First round, Mariners grab sweet swinging shortstop Cole Young out of the Pittsburgh area, a two-way player, over 400 in his last two seasons, a terrific defensive shortstop. Here's his North Allegheny Tigers high school coach, Andrew Heck. Hey, coach, how are you? Doing great. Thanks for having me on. Well, thank you for being on. Is is the rumor true that Andrew Heck single-handedly brought the demise of the Duquesne baseball program? Is that true? <laughs> I was uh, part of the Title IX back in uh, 2010. What happened? So, so you played three years. You played three years of college baseball at Duquesne. Transferred for your final year at Oklahoma State. So you were a very accomplished ball player yourself. But what happened to the Duquesne program after your junior year? What happened? Yeah, absolutely. They pulled the rug right from underneath us. Uh, pretty much right before the season started back in January when everybody got back from Christmas break. Told us that this would be the last season of Duquesne baseball, which was. Uh, it was tough. Our head guy, our head coach at the time was Mike Wilson. People in Seattle might know uh, his son a little bit, who was Josh Wilson. Played shortstop for yeah. Seattle for a couple of years there. Well-known guy, very good coach, did a lot for the program and everything else. So it was kind of tough to hear that, you know, they were just going to pull the plug on you so quick. A lot of backing, a lot of support in the Pittsburgh area from a lot of people, uh, a lot of, you know, baseball people as well. It was tough. Uh, I was lucky. Uh, I'll be the first person to tell you played for three or two years leading up to that year at Duquesne. I had the stats to be able to get recruited, go some other places. Uh, the hard part was for some of those freshmen, the incoming freshmen who haven't played a single uh, a game yet in college to hear that, you know, you're, you're going to not have a place to play come next year. Before I get to uh, your prize shortstop, 
who joins the Mariners. I want to bust your chops one more time. Go for it. Cal Ripken Jr., your favorite all-time player, a Pittsburgh kid. You you got to have a pirate. Uh, come on, there's got to be a bucko that you can't you can't go Orioles on us for your all, all-time <laughs> favorite player. I did have a favorite pirate, but you got to understand. All growing up, it was it was kind of hard because they were bad. The pirate <laughs> pirates. Were, I mean, you're sticking with Cal Ripken though. Jay Bell was my big guy back okay, in the day. Okay, okay. I loved I loved I loved Jay Bell as a pirate. He, <laughs> He was hands down my favorite uh, from a pirate side of things, but I, I always said I had three, so I, I wore different numbers all the time. I always either wore number three for J Bell, yeah. I either wore number eight for Cal Ripken, yeah, or seven because of Mickey Mantle. We have the same birth date. I got a trivia question for you, Coach. Who was Go for it? When was the last time the Mariners organization picked a shortstop this high in the MLB draft? Any idea? Well, so there was a lot of research getting done uh, on Sunday night, a lot by me so that I could try to maybe fill in and stuff. I'm going to say never. Have they never drafted a shortstop in the first round? They actually drafted a first round first overall pick shortstop in 1993 by the name of Alex Rodriguez. I don't know whatever happened to him, coach. I don't know if I should have, I should have got, I should have got that, but that is, uh, that's the, uh, that's unbelievable that, you know, it's been that long since they've had a first round infielder, especially after they had the success that they did with uh, Alex Rodriguez. You know, I thought maybe it was a trick question. I should have thought on the big, I should have thought on the big time, you know, how big somebody could go to. So uh, the 21st pick, Cole Young, your shortstop. Great, great high school talent. Seems like a good kid. You'll tell us if he's a he's a good kid. Sweet swinging. Tell us about him. Shortstop plays, you know, two-way player, really good shortstop. And they say the sweetest swing in the draft. First of all, he's a left-hander, so that gives him an unfair advantage, obviously. All these lefties, they all look good. What uh, What makes him special? Yeah, the sweet swing from the left side, you know, right into run into first base. I always say that makes it look so nice. But Cole, he, he's he he always is finding barrels, always hitting the ball off the barrel of the bat, and I mean he's driving the baseball. I really like what Cole has done since uh, kind of when he was younger and everything. His speed is one of his great attributes, uh, and I think that that kind of nowadays in the game, I think that area kind of gets lost a little bit. Uh, you don't really see the speed factor until you get to major league playoff baseball. And then you start seeing a lot more attention to the stolen bag aspect uh, of the game. I think Cole is a great shortstop. He makes plays sometimes as a high school kid that you just don't see other high school kids making. And I think that's what one of the things about him defensively is some people just get caught up in kind of watching the game and watching how smooth the play gets made. If you understand baseball, how hard of a play that he just made made it look really easy. It just speaks volumes to how good defensively he really is. But swing-wise, the biggest thing that jumps off the table with him is just his contact. It's always loud. Every time he's hitting the ball, it's it's always barrels. I think that the power numbers are going to come grow into his body more and more. I think he can put 15 to 20 pounds on muscle-wise, and it's only going to help the power numbers. Shortstop for the long haul, do you think? I would say yes. Again, I think it comes down to needs. Uh, within an organization. I know he can play second base. I know he could play third if need be, uh, but I see him staying at shortstop. He's 88 to 90 across the diamond from an arm side of things. 
there's no question in my mind that he stays. At, he can stay at short if that's what the organization needs. Beautiful. We we look forward to having Cole in the Seattle Mariners organization for a long time. I know he's just a high school guy, so it's going to be we're going to have to be patient. And I have trouble being patient as I get older. I get older and older and older. Back in the day when I was 25, I didn't care. Okay, six years, five years until the high school guy gets to the big leagues. Now, God, I just hope I'm around. I hope I'm around when these guys play uh, shortstop for the Seattle Mariners. Uh, Andrew Heck, the North Allegheny Tigers head head coach, and and Cole Young's coach the last couple of two three years as he hit over 400 and was the 21st overall pick in the Major League Baseball draft by the Mariners. Thank you, Coach. Thank you, Andrew. Thanks for being with us. Thanks a lot. Have a good one. So let's pivot from our introduction to Cole Young to a broader sense of how the Mariners did last week in the draft. No man better than Jim Callis, MLB Pipeline, MLB.com. How are you, Jim? Welcome back. I'm doing good, Mitch. How are you doing? I'm doing okay. So my question is, is the draft's number one priority annually to inject new, exciting young players into our beloved sport? Or is it to make us feel old and ancient? (laughs) Every year, kids of players that seem like that they were all-stars yesterday, and now Matt Holiday and Andrew Jones, really? One, two, their kids go? I know. I know. I remember covering their dad. Well, not Andrew Jones in the draft, but I remember covering... Matt Holiday in the draft. So yeah, it's, it's, I'm with you, Mitch. I feel very old when I when I see these names and the the bloodlines that are getting discussed. It's crazy. How good are those two guys? They're really really good. I mean, I think they're the two best players in the draft. Uh, Jackson Holiday, who went number one overall to the Orioles, he's kind of a five tool shortstop, kind of similar to Bobby Witt Jr. I think I think Bobby Witt Jr. is maybe. The athleticism's a, little, a tick better, but I think Jackson Holiday is a better hitter at the same age than Bobby Wood Jr. was. So, like, that's obviously pretty good. And then Drew Jones, I, I saw him for the first time at the high school All America game uh, in Denver last year, a couple of days before the All Star game. And it was funny because Elijah Green and Termar Johnson were the guys getting the most hype. And when I saw Drew Jones, he looked so good. And I remember asking people, like, why aren't people talking about this guy more? And he reminds you so much of his dad. I mean, I know that's kind of a easy comp, but like that's he reminds you of his dad. We just spent some time with um, with Cole Young's high school coach, Jim. What do you think of the shortstop? Good value at 21 overall. You had him 27 to the Brewers in your final mock before the draft. Yeah, we had him ranked as the 20th best player in the draft. There was some talk, not, not really slipping, because it's not like guys were really doing anything a month before the draft, but like that he might last a little bit longer. Um, but no, he is a good value. He's, he's one of the... He, you had your top-tier high school guys, your Holiday, Drew Jones. I mentioned Termar Johnson, Elijah Green. That was kind of your top-tier of high school guys, those four. Mm-hmm. And then I think Cole was right there near the top of the second tier high school guys. And I, I think what stands out most is his ability to make contact at the plate. He's a left-handed hitter. You know, it's not going to be like a 30 home run guy, but he's not a little slappy guy who, you know, just hitting ground balls either. I mean, I think it's a guy who hits for average with a lot of doubles, solid speed, good instincts on the bases and in the field. I think he's got enough arm and quickness to stay at shortstop. You know, maybe, you know, if you have a really excellent defensive shortstop in your system, then maybe he winds up at second base in the long run. But he's he's a very talented player who can who can do a little bit of everything. Do you have a comp for him? The comp we had on him, Jonathan Mayo did our scouting report on him because he, he does Pennsylvania. He had him as a Adam Frazier with more pop and a better chance to stay at shortstop or 
Stephen Drew. Those those are the comps he had on him. Mm. Any idea of the success rate, Jim, of these high school middle infielders? It's a long time, obviously, before they come up to the big leagues. Yeah, I mean, I'd say in general on any first round pick, regardless of demographic, you know, if you have thirty first round picks, you're going to have ten of them who are good or good or better than you think they're going to be. Ten of them who'll get to the big leagues, but just kind of you know be whatever. And then 10 or so maybe who don't get to the big leagues. So, but like, I mean, the thing that, that makes you feel good about Cole Young's chances are the number one most important thing for any position player, we could talk tools and speed and power mm-hmm. and whatever, mm-hmm. is the ability to hit. If you don't hit, you don't play in the big leagues, I guess, unless you're Joey Gallo or something. <laughs> but um, Cole Young can hit. So I, I feel pretty good about his chances. How's the rest of the Mariners class? VCU product Tyler Locklear is either a third baseman or a first baseman. People seem to be excited about this hard-throwing high schooler that's only 17 years old, Walter Ford. What do you know about him? Yeah, yeah I, I like their class. I mean, Locklear is a bad first guy, but he, you know, there's a highlight reels of him on, on the internet. He hits the ball about as hard as anybody did in college baseball this year in terms of exit velocities. Just hit some mammoth home runs for VCU. It's right-handed power. That's what's going to carry him. Got a chance to play third realistically probably more of a first baseman, but the bat is pretty interesting. The power, it's some of the best right-handed power in the draft. Mm-hmm. Yeah, Walter Ford, their their supplemental second rounder is a guy who was going to be part of the 2023 draft and he reclassified after after a big summer last year. So he he won't be 18 until right before uh, the, the year turns, like December 28th. Mm-hmm. And he, he's a projectable six foot three kid. He touches 97. He's got a quick arm. He's got a pretty good slider. You know, he needs to develop a changeup, but I mean, you're a high school pitcher. So like how many changeups are you really going to be throwing at that point? Athletic kid. I think you're going to have pretty good, you know, control and feel for pitching. He, he's a guy, I'll be curious to see what he gets because he went 74th. I would have thought you, you probably have to, and they probably will have to pay him top 50 pick money to, to sign him. But he, but he's a really, really talented kid. Is there anybody else in this vast group, the sea of players that the Mariners drafted that caught your eye for, for any reason? Yeah. I, I, you know, they have, uh, they have a couple more interesting high school pitchers, AJ Izzy in the fourth round and Tyler Guff in the ninth round. I actually saw Tyler Guff. I mean, it was just an inning, but they were, they're playing like a showcase style game at the draft combine, he faced five batters and struck all five out. Like he looked pretty good. I mean, for a one inning five batter look Mm -hmm. on the college side, Josh hood, their sixth round pick out of NC state. He's a pretty, uh, a pretty interesting guy might be a third baseman in the long run, but he's got some, it's a power over hit guy. It's he's had a weird career. He was the Ivy league rookie of the year at Penn. And then he barely played because of the pandemic in 2020 and the Ivy league canceled 2021. So he didn't really play for two years and, and then came back at NC state this year and had a pretty good season. So those are some other names that are kind of interesting in their draft. Jim Callis is with us. He knows more about this uh, minor league systems than just about anybody else. Jim, many had the Mariners farm system rated number one. Now that you don't include Julio, you don't include Kirby, Kelnick struggles, do they drop significantly on all these lists? Marte, I guess, is the best guy they got now in the minor leagues. Yeah, yeah we haven't updated our list, but you know they, they've graduated Kelnick and Rodriguez and Gilbert and Kirby and Cal Raleigh and mm-hmm. Matt Brash mm-hmm. and they've graduated. But that said, yeah. So, I mean, we haven't updated our rankings yet because we've been dealing with the draft and we got the trade deadline coming. So we haven't updated ours. They will t- 
humble, but that's because their system did the job it was supposed to do. Now that said, they still have a bunch of interesting guys. I mean, Marte's the highest ranked. You got Harry Ford, last year's first round pick. Edwin Arroyo, super young shortstop who's even younger than Marte, looks really interesting. Emerson Hancock, again, it was a short look, but for a guy who's been up and down injury-wise and wondering exactly what might be going on with him, one inning look at the Futures game, Mitch, he looked as good as any pitcher there. He struck out three guys in a row. Can't remember if they were all looking. At least two of them were looking. He had so much life on a fastball that he was throwing 96-97. So he looked really good. So they, they still have talent. It's just, you know, they're not as deep because they've promoted so many guys to the big leagues. Is Kelnick a bust? Or is there still a chance? And how and how surprised is everyone in your world with his struggles out of the gate? I'm really surprised because I thought he was the best high school hitter in his class and he had success in the minors everywhere. Like if you told me, I mean, look, a lot of guys have trouble, you know, or not trouble, but like it takes them a little while to acclimate to the big leagues. Like I would have been like, okay, I get that. But the fact that he came up and he struck out at, you know, like a 30% clip as a rookie. And then, you know, he, you know, you had some hope, you know, like he played better in September. You're like, okay, maybe he's figured it out. And this year, I mean, he struck out at like a 38% clip when he was up. I don't get it. I, I am mystified. I mean, I do think there's obviously some talent there. He's still putting up AAA numbers, but he's striking out so much more than I ever would have thought. Like that's what, but it would be one thing if you weren't playing well, but you know, you were striking out at like a 20% clip. But he's been striking out danger zone strikeout rates. Mm-hmm. And it just really surprised me. You know, and I think he's – I do think he has a mental toughness to come back from it. I I mean, you, you, I'm sure you saw the same thing. I can't remember where I saw the story, but someone was talking to him recently at, at one of the outlets. And he was saying how, you know, too many voices in his head yes. telling him how to fix things. Yes. And, yeah, it's it's, it's worrisome. I, I, I certainly have not totally given up on him. I certainly wouldn't like trade him because you'd be trading him, you know, you'd be selling him very low, mm-hmm. but I am concerned. You must be watching closely this Soto trade speculation. It's obviously being discussed here and, and in other cities with major league teams. Would you trade, Jim, a boatload of top prospects to get Soto for two and a half years before he goes somewhere for $500 million? Probably would. I mean, I'd probably want to have some feel for whether I could sign him before I did that. Although, I mean, you theoretically could come back and trade him before he became a free agent too. You don't have players who are that great, that young, get traded. It might have been Joe Sheehan. I had a column about it. And he mentioned Babe Ruth. There were two players. (laughs) It was Babe Ruth... And I cannot think who the second player was. Because <laughs> like, so, Soto's only 20, but he basically, the two teams had gotten had, had voluntarily given up those players. It took them decades to become relevant again. So, like, if you trade Juan Soto, unless you hit on every prospect you get, it's probably not going to work out for you. How about for the acquiring team? They're going to want Marte. They're going to want Logan Gilbert. They're going to want George Kirby. I mean, the Mariners would have to trade a bunch of guys, some of which are the core, the centerpiece of this incredible run that they're on. Yeah, I mean, it would depend on what the asking price was. I mean, I I would just submit, I'm not saying I would just give up whatever they wanted. And again, I'd want to know, can I sign him? And the answer might be, you might not be able to. You know, this is like when the Dodgers trade for Mookie Betts, the Dodgers knew like, look, he's going to love it here. We have more money than just about anybody. So, you know, we may be able to get this done. I, I don't know if Seattle could necessarily do that. But from a talent standpoint, I mean, what's Soto, 23? Yes. The numbers he puts up between the 
production and the power and the discipline are kind of reminiscent of like Ted Williams. I mean, we're talking all-time great territory here. I think getting the, the, the superstar in the deal is how you win that deal, even if you have to give up. I'm not saying I'd say, hey, here's Julio and Gilbert and, Kel- and, and Kirby and Marte and Harry Ford. I'm not saying I'd give up anybody the Nationals wanted, but I would, I would, I would definitely listen. I guess you answered my last question. I was going to ask you at the end of the day, Fernando Tatis Jr., Soto, or Julio 20 years from now? Uh, well, see, I would say for, for right now, I'd rather, I mean, you could make a case you'd rather have Julio because he could cost you a lot less. I mean, I think Soto's the best player there in the long run. I just think what he's doing is historic. I mean, you got to like Tatis, although he gets hurt a lot. Um, and it may just be his style of play. He's going to lose games to injury. I, Julio, I just think you're talking special player, special makeup. I'm not saying he's going to put up Juan Soto numbers, but man, how old is Julio now? 20? 21. 21, and I know he's played half a season. Yes. But, like, my only answers are yes or no. <laughs> based on this, this, based on what we know, Julio, Julio Rodriguez, Hall of Famer, I would say yes. Wow. I think he's going to... I think he'd be that good. No, I know, and I know that's ridiculous, Mitch. Yeah. <laughs> I know he's barely played, but but just the talent, how good he's been. The umpires were totally screwing him. I don't understand why. For like the first four to six weeks of season, he just kept his mouth shut. He's been exactly what we thought he'd be at a young age. Ever since that, that that nonsense stopped happening. But yeah, I'm not, again, I'm not saying he's a slam dunk. Like, but I'm just saying, if, if my answers are Julio's going to the Hall of Fame right now, yes or no, or my only two choices, then I would pick yes. He, you know, I think he's that good. You know, what's funny is you mentioned all of his attributes, but you missed one, which I think is going to be the telltale sign. And that's his personality. No, it's the best. It's huge. I mean, right? It, I mean, when we start talking about Koenig and Julio, you talk about Julio and how he struggled out of the gate with all the umpiring and all the stuff that you talked about, but he's got the greatest disposition, the greatest personality to be able to weather those storms. Kalnick is so damn hard on himself and is is grinding over every single at bat and not really smiling all that much. You can see why he's having trouble getting out of this while Julio just goes and plays the game with a huge smile on his face. And Julio didn't take the bait. I mean, people were asking him, like, and again, it wasn't anything he did. I don't think the umpires all decided they were just going to get together and screw Julio. But I want to say, like, the first four or six weeks of the season, basically the batter who was getting the worst calls from umpires was unquestionably Julio in the whole big leagues. And people would ask him about it, and he wouldn't take the bait. Not that people were trying to get him riled up, but, like, he just... That guy, his personality is awesome. You saw a little bit when he was mic'd up in the All-Star game. Yeah, People are going to love Julio. I think he's going to be one of the faces of baseball in the, in the next three to five years. And that personality is just, when he's done playing, if he wants to go work for MLB Network, <laughs> that'll be waiting for him. He, he, he's, he just gets it. And it's sincere. I just think he's a very joyful person and he brings that joy to the diamond. And it's impossible not to root for a guy like that. MLB Pipeline, MLB.com, always kind to us, always has a few minutes for us here on Mitch Unfiltered. Jim Callis, the best. Thank you, Jim. Thanks for being back on the show. Yeah, great talking to you, Mitch. Boy, it's been a tough few months for our 401k plans, hasn't it? Here's Katie Versio of Evergreen Golf Call. Katie, give us some good news, will you? There's not a lot of great news in the market to report, except if you're a buyer. It's a good time to be buying and to have cash. It's also a good time to go three for three. I feel it. 
This is going to be my day. What's the theme of your quiz today, Katie? It's a market update to see how much you're paying attention. I'm paying attention. So go ahead. Question number one. U.S. inflation in May reached the highest level in more than four decades. What was the inflation increase? Was it 7.6%, 8.3%, or 8.6%? 8.6% C, Katie. Oh, you are right. It was 8.6% up from 8.3% last month. So really driven by a lot of the supply chain issues, energy prices. That's why the market has been really volatile around these numbers. And Mitch Levy is one for one for the first time in his history. I'm ready for question number two. All right. Number two, in June of 2021, oil was $68 a barrel. What is the cost today? Is it $100 a barrel? 120 or 140 $120 a barrel. B. That's right. Yes. That is right. Now, that's what's really causing this inflation spike is that the cost of energy has just gone up so much over the last year. And Mitch Levy has a chance to go three for three as he predicted. I'm ready for question number three. This one could be an easy one. It's a true or false question. True or false. Both stocks and bonds are down for 2022. Absolutely true, Katie. That is true. You went three for three. Yes, so stocks are down 18% and bonds are down 11%. It's been a really ugly year where there's not a lot of places to hide. Essentially, the only area of the market that is up on the year is energy. That's why here at Evergreen, we think that active management makes a lot of sense. It used to be really easy to make money in the market for the last five or 10 years or so, where you just buy the index and it keeps going up. But now we think, you know, there's pockets of value. We think there's certain areas that make sense. So we think active management makes a lot of sense in this environment. And that's why it's a good time to check out everything that Evergreen is doing. Start with their website, evergreengk.com. We love Katie Versio, Director of Financial Planning at Evergreen Golf Call. Everything wealth. Unfiltered. Here's an awesome moment for an Iraq War veteran. Randy Shack, who was paralyzed in battle, played in the PGA Hope Graduation Day Tournament and drained this long birdie putt from off the green. His teammates had the best reaction. <laughs> this long putt by Shaq helped his team win the tournament, which is awesome. But just seeing him out there having fun is even better. Our next guest pretty much sums up what I love most about this podcast experience over the last four years featuring people that have admirable stories to tell you. Ladies and gentlemen, I'd like to introduce you to U.S. Army veteran Randy Shack. Randy, great to have you on Mitch Unfiltered. Oh, it's great to be here, sir. Thank you. What a great privilege it is to have you on the show. I'm hopeful it's okay to ask you to retell your difficult story one more time. 2007, tour of Iraq, 25 years old you were at the time. Did I read that you were right there at the end of your duty? Yes, sir, yeah. It was towards the end of it. I mean, it was between 2006, 2007. Uh, I mean, there was multiple accounts of, or there was multiple IEDs. I mean, the first one I can remember was on actual Thanksgiving day. And then uh, ones that really stand out was the one where I was gonna go home for R&R the next day. And I'm usually the second vehicle in our formation riding with our LT, our lieutenant. And he just happened to go home the day before me. And they had me up in the first truck uh, in the gunner position. And 
it was just one of those feelings, you know, like this isn't normal. I'm never really here. I'm not on the gun or I'm usually on the gun, but in the second truck, second vehicle. And it was just that feeling, you know, I'm going home to tomorrow out of formation. I'm, we finished our, uh, our patrol and then we get a Frago, uh, fragment order you know they just extend it because someone called in a v-bed of possible vehicle born ied and we have to go check it out and it was just that feeling you know it's like 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 the movies you see like oh they're going home the next day he's not it was just out of out of order out of character for what it was supposed to be apart from me in my position this was not the first time you had to deal with this type of explosion no sir i mean like, like the first time was on thanksgiving uh I think that one, we were headed back to the base as well. And then uh, one of our other uh, platoons were split in half. Uh, One of our Sergeant Killian, Aaron Killian, he got shot through the legs and we were responding back to him and driving down the street. And we look up and you see someone on the roof and you're like, hey, look, there's someone up on the roof. And bam, you know, we just get hit and then just get rocked back and forth a little bit. And, you know, that was the first one. And then the other ones just similar to that, just driving down the road and, are patrolling the city and just driving through the city and the roads and people clear out and you know something's going to happen. You just don't know where or when. And uh, another uh, IED just goes off and just rocks you around. And wow. You just drive through and make sure everyone's okay and then pretty much continue on with mission. So this was your fifth time. I, I know that you said in another interview that if you get, if you have seven experiences with this type of explosiveness that that's the end they send you home after that uh pretty much it was around seven yes sir uh because uh tbi traumatic brain injury was pretty high at that level so you came back and your condition worsened it deteriorated after you came back to the point that doctors couldn't repair your spinal cord I'm a little unclear as to how you felt when you came back after that fifth go around with an IED. Uh, After that one, it felt, it felt pretty shocked. I mean, I could tell something was off because, you know, I was going to come home the next day. So, you know, get checked out by the troop medical clinic, just tell them everything's kind of fine because I don't want to reschedule my trip to come back home. So flying on the C-130 out of Baghdad International Airport to Kuwait, it was, I could just feel my head ringing, pounding and, I didn't really feel anything too much in my back at the time because uh, it was pretty severe in my head. Came home and it was it was kind of sore and everything, but it wasn't until after I actually uh, got medically discharged from the Army because I tried to reclass out of infantry to go to biomedical equipment repair, try something different because I re-enlisted for another six years trying to get clear to go back infantry. was That's when they found that my back was pretty much deteriorating and the narrowing of the spinal cord, multiple discs were bulging and they just said I couldn't do it. And you were walking just fine at that point. Yes, sir. And then- yeah, so I had got out in June, June yeah, June two thousand nine, and then uh, for about a year, it was pretty severe back pain. And then pretty much a year after I got out, it was like July two thousand ten. I just couldn't stand up straight. It was pretty much two weeks after my twenty sixth birthday. Yeah, at the end of July. Wow. It was when it was just hunched over more and just more until pretty much like my head were touching my toes. My head was just bent over pretty much. And, you know, try to go to the hospitals and they're just pain pills or pain shots. Like, oh, you're fine. You're fine. And I was getting wheeled into the ER because I couldn't even stand on my own. And, you know, they're just like, oh, you're fine. Here's a pain shot to your back. You'll be all right. And like so many of our selfless and precious veterans, 
you went down a, a real difficult spiral. You spiraled down with all that pain. You were embarrassed that you were in a wheelchair and you got to a period of self-medicating. We're getting to the, uh, to the exciting and interesting way you popped out of it, which all of our listeners are going to love so very much. But before we get there, talk about that period where you didn't even want to come out of the house. All you wanted to do was drink. Uh, yes, yeah, so like you said, it was just self-medicating because uh, I was ashamed of being in a wheelchair just because of that stigma. You know, everyone's going to be staring at you like, oh, look at this guy. Every eye is on you no matter where you go because, you know, it's the guy in a wheelchair. Everyone's going to see it's unnoticeable. Everyone's going to notice right away. Right. And then part of it was just being feeling like you're invincible, surviving so many IDs and some firefights and other friends getting injured worse than myself. And here I am. I had gone out because of back pain and done in by a small little bone fragment that pushed on my spinal cord. So I felt, felt weak and, like you said, shameful. And I, I didn't want to leave. So I, I stayed at home and drank way too much, drank a lot. I mean, it was just, I didn't know what else to do. I felt powerless. And so that was the only thing I knew what to do to feel, to numb the pain. And then you came out of it. Oh, uh, yes, sir. You came yes. out of it. There were some incidents with your kids. Uh, yeah, I had to quit drinking. I mean, it took a while. I got out of the house. I would drink pretty much just to get out of the house. So I could numb it and feel less less uncomfortable, I guess you could say. My wife would take me places, and that would be the only way I could get out of the house was, you know, I had to drink real quick, take a shot of scotch or two shots of scotch, and... I'd be like, all right, let's go get that liquid courage going. Yeah. But uh, my son was three and we were leaving or we were just going out in the garage somewhere. And he just automatically went to the to the fridge and just grabbed me a beer. And he's like, here you go, dad. And I didn't even ask or I didn't even feel like drinking. And he just it was just automatic for him just to grab me a drink. And it was around the same time our daughters were getting married. And I was didn't really remember anything of all that experience for them. And. I just, I just knew something had to change and my wife was always on me about it and all that just accumulated uh, something. I just, I, it was time for a big change. And thankfully with the HOPE program, that, that really, really helped change a lot. I mean, that really was a life statement. So when you found golf, God, I love this story about you finding golf. And by the way, you've got a beautiful golf swing. I don't care. Oh. I don't care what kind of cart, what kind of chair you're in when you swing that club. You got a beautiful golf swing that can stick with anybody. But had you played golf? Did you have any history of golf? And how did you stumble upon the PGA's HOPE, which stands for Helping Our Patriots Everywhere, their program? I had swung clubs before I joined the Army. I mean, born in West Phoenix, Arizona. So, I mean, there's golf courses all around there. Everywhere you go, there's like one every every couple miles, but, uh, through the hope program, I found that they were starting a clinic down in Dallas at Cedar crest with Ira Moya, the spinal cord injury unit, the rec recreational therapist there, Skylar fruit. He's like, Hey, I know you mentioned golf before they're starting this program. I really wouldn't have gone outdoors or done anything. I just seen it through an email and my wife just happened to, we were laying in bed and she was like, what are you doing? I was like, look, there's this program, this golf program starting. She's like, you should do it. You should go. Definitely. I'm like, nah, I, I don't feel like it. She's like, you should go. I was like, I know you're getting tired of me 24 seven being around. She's like, you should go. So I was like, all right, I'll go try it out. And it was hard to get there. It was hard to get out of the vehicle because I sat there for about a good 30 minutes deciding, you know, I was just watching people come in and out. Like, do I really want to go? I mean, I don't know people. It's going to be weird. You know, I'm going to be in my chair. 
and that was just a big thing for me. Like, I don't, I don't, I don't want to be in my chair doing this. Like, I didn't really want to be in my chair doing anything, but I was like, oh, I'm already here. It took like 40 minutes to get here. So I'm just watching all these other veterans go in other ones with like canes and different generations of military was coming in different branches. And I was like, all right, they're here. They could do it. I could do it. So I went in, uh, they were well, very welcoming. You know, they didn't treat me any different because I was in a wheelchair, you know, just the same banter that we had in the military. And it, it kind of helped ease the, ease, ease the trans transition from feeling so, so uptight and feeling out of place to just being welcomed. Swung some junior clubs because I didn't know how to swing in the chair. Right. And, you know, they kept telling me they had, Hey, we have a solo rider. I was like, Oh, Ooh, I, I don't know what that is. Yeah. That's awesome. Yeah. So they brought it out and I remember him driving around the range and I saw it. I was like, Oh, that's pretty interesting. It was a single rider golf cart with a spot to put your golf bag on the front. For our listeners, at least the model that you use, it lifts you up to almost a standing position. I wouldn't say completely upright, but angled enough to where you can use full golf clubs. And we're going to tell everybody, we're going to make everybody feel bad how hard, how hard and how far you hit it now. We'll keep that as a little secret between you and me. But I just want to give everybody the visual. These, these new solo riders, they're amazing all the different things that they do. Oh, yes, sir. I mean, they leave a less uh, PSI than a person, a 200-pound person standing on the greens. It's so evened out that a 200-pound rider with a 50-pound bag would leave about a five PSI print on the green, so you can't even you really can tell it's been Right onto on the it. green. You go right onto the green. On the green, tee box, and sand boxes. I mean, I, I try to avoid those, but it's, know, I have to find so them it, now it, and then. it swings you around. It lifts you up into position. The golf club is on the on the front of the cart, so facing you, so you can right grab, right, you can grab the club right out, and then you start swinging. All right, tell everybody what your USGA index is. Uh, currently, it's about a fourteen point five. Fourteen point five. Fourteen point five. And what's how low have you gone on a golf course since you've been in a chair? How low have you gone? Uh, the, the lowest I, short, I shot was a 78 before for uh, Woodbridge in Wiley, Texas. Yes! And how yes, far yes, yes. And how far are you hitting the driver? I hit the driver probably around 225. I catch a good down slope. It'll, it'll roll down to about 250, 275. 250, uh, 275. You're hitting it straight or you, you spray oh, it? Yeah. <laughs> uh, no, no, it goes straight. It goes straight. You just finished playing what they call the 2022 U.S. Adaptive Open. So this is a this is a USGA event. The same people that run the U.S. Open put together this golf tournament for guys with all kinds, guys and ladies with all kinds of disabilities. And you played at the at the famous Pinehurst course, did you not? What was that like? Yes, sir. Oh. Yes, sir. Pinehurst number six. Oh, it was amazing. And I mean, the way they had it set up. I talked to one of the major rules officials for the USG and he said, this is the same setup we do for the players to the open. You have the players tent, the player hospitality area, scoring tent, live scoring. So the only thing missing is less TV and less people. But I mean, there was, their neighbors were coming out watching us on the course. It, it was amazing. And how'd you do? I, mean, was, I didn't do my best. <laughs> I'm not used to having, having cameras, that many cameras staring at you and, People clapping when you hit a ball. It's just, it was amazing. It, it was one of those good, weird feelings like, oh, wow, someone's clapping for us. It's, there's people around us. I got to watch if I don't shank and hit them. <laughs> you don't want to hurt anybody. <laughs> yeah, yeah. 
And how was the experience? Amazing? Dreamy? Oh, yeah. It was a dream. It was unbelievable. Almost, I can't even describe it. I mean, to be out there on the on that Pinehurst, the greens, the fairways, the bunkers. Unfortunately, I found a couple. Well, there is still amazing to be in there. <laughs> Like, oh, I'm going to take some of these home. I mean, even on the practice area, they had your name right there on the placard, the USGA, and it says yeah. Shaq. And, you know, the caddies had their bibs. They had their badges. They had your name on the back. You know, brand new Pro V1s. You know, a couple of those might have found their way in my bag. I was like, oh, I got to take some of these there. You know, these are brand new. It's an amazing story, Randy. You and what you've overcome and what you've sacrificed for us, for guys like me to be able to talk on this microphone. Just amazing. And I know that you think of golf as a life changer. Before I ask you about that, I want you to tell me how hard on yourself you are after you hit a bad shot, being that you've gone through everything that you've gone through in your life. Does it change your perspective after you hit a, a loose one right of the green? I mean, it bothers me a little bit because I know I could I could do better. But I just know the feeling of okay, this isn't this doesn't feel right. This this is what's gonna happen from that bad shot. So I kind of take more away from having a bad shot than the good ones because I know what a good shot would feel like, but I know what a bad shot feels like. It's a good experience as well because you could take the good from the bad from it. And how's life off the golf course? How's life with your family? How are you dealing with what you saw over there, what you endured over there? How you dealing with alcohol? How would you say you're just doing How's Randy doing just overall? Oh, he's just he's doing so much better right now. So, like I said, we moved out to the country. We got animals. I don't, don't know if you can see the donkeys behind me. So, uh -huh. spend more time with animals and people and just start talking to them. So, I know I got to go out to people when I, but they're talking back to me and I understand what they're saying. I was like, all right, I got to get out of here. I got to go play some golf. Have you gotten used to the looks that you got that you that you were so scared of going out of the house, being in the chair? Are you... Are you acclimated to that harsh reality of your life? It's still getting a little bit more comfortable to go out, uh, getting used to it some more. I mean, some people would stare and kind of give them a welcome smile and give them a little nod. How you doing? How you doing? And I'm fortunate enough that most people are nice. They don't really judge. They just welcome me back and mm. say, how, how are you doing? And give me a handshake and start a little conversation. And I'm on my way again. People make fun of me, Randy, I'll have you know, because I'm a huge golf fan and I probably talk too much about golf, both on my radio show of 22 years and now the podcast. Everybody who doesn't like golf says, Mitch, you talk way too much about golf, enough about <laughs> golf. I want to just kind of pass the baton to you as a guy who was kind of casually familiar with golf. When you look back upon your life, what the game of golf has meant to you? Oh, uh, it's meant giving me a second chance at life again and being able to help other people with the game of golf. God, I'm at a last four words for what it's done for me. It's given me so much and it's helped me overcome a lot more. Well, I've been doing this, uh, this deal of interviewing for probably 35 years, give or take, and I've had an opportunity to speak to some of the great names and great voices in sports, but they all kind of pale in comparison to a guy like you. And I really I mean that from the bottom of my heart. I know that we had to scoot around your schedule to get this, this interview accomplished, but it's guys like you that give guys like me a better perspective on life. I sweat the small stuff sometimes, Randy, and it takes, oh, a, it takes a conversation with a man like you 
who has gone through what you have and persevered and come out on the other end to remind me, hey, stop sweating the small stuff and stop being a little child sometimes. Oh, I understand. I, I still sweat the small things as well. And uh, I apologize for having to reschedule things. No, and, it's okay. It's yeah, okay. I had to get feed for animals. So, I mean, once, <laughs> those kind of take precedence. They do. The animals over Mitch anytime. Listen. All the very best to you. I hope you'll allow us to check in with you from time to time. And in fact, you have a commitment with me, an interview with me after St. Andrews. Okay. You can't oh, yes, sir. You, you can't go to St. Andrews and come back to Texas without talking to Mitch. I gotta hear I've never played St. I gotta hear what the experience was like through uh through your eyes. Will you do that for us? Oh yes, sir. I'll grab you a souvenir from while there as well. <laughs> Randy, you are the, find a bunker. I'll grab you some sand. Don't go in those bunkers, <laughs> Randy. Don't go in those bunkers. Sometimes they just call my name. I got to see what it's like. Like, oh, yeah, let's see what this bunker over there looks like from down there. Randy, you're a heck of a guy. All the very best to you and your family. Mitch, thank you. Thank you, sir. I don't know much, but I know this. It takes a lot longer for summer to arrive in the Northwest than Zeke's Pizza to your door. Ladies and gentlemen, Dan Black, the president of of Zeke's Pizza. Hiya, Dan. What's new in the Zeke's Pizza world these days? Yeah, no kidding. Only takes us 30 minutes. Takes summer a lot longer. <laughs> uh, lots of new stuff in the Zeke's world. You and I tend to talk about new store openings a lot, and we got a good one coming up at the end of July. We're opening at Terrace Station, which is a transit-oriented development right off I-5 up in Mount Lake Terrace, kind of north of 205th. And it is going to be a really cool restaurant. It's really big. It's a full-blown pizza pub. It's got a huge outdoor patio. It's going to be a cool spot. Nice. And what pizza is Dan Black and the Black family focusing on these days? <laughs> we are eating nothing but pepperoni right nice. now. And it's because we have this great new locally sourced pepperoni that we're putting on all of our pizzas. We just switched over. Local company called Coro. They used to be Salumi. You know, we typically don't do local just for the sake of local. We end up doing a lot of local stuff because it tastes better. We want as much of our purchasing power to go into flavor as opposed to transportation. And so we end up local a lot and it feels good to be doing it on the pepperoni because it noticeably tastes a lot better. So we've been eating a lot of it. Of course, we like doing business with our friends and family and neighbors and stuff uh, when we can. And so, yeah, it's been all pepperoni all the time for the black family lately. I'm not a huge drinker, but I'm very much aware of your Northwest beer selection, Dan. Tell me about Z-Side Frozen IPA. Yeah, as, as you know, Mitch, we do a lot of what we call collab beers, and that's that's when we partner with local breweries, and they, they brew a batch of beer that basically is exclusively Zeke's. And so at any given time, we have three or four really great Northwest beers on that you can only get at Zeke's. It's kind of what's special about us. But this summer, our flagship is Z-Side Frozen IPA. We're doing it with Fremont Brewing. Almost everybody knows who Fremont is. They're one of the biggest uh, breweries in the Northwest. They have that great outdoor beer garden that everybody loves. And they, you know, they just brew great beer. Z-Side, it's a light drinking summer IPA. It was made with an experimental hop that they froze at the time of harvest last fall. Mm -hmm. And so it tastes really fresh and is really light drinking, really good for summer. Man, a lot of good things going on at Zeke's Pizza these days. We really appreciate their support back in the radio days and now on the podcast, Mitch Unfiltered. We love them. Zeke's Pizza, homegrown in the Northwest. Unfiltered. As long as I can remember, I wanted to be shortstop for the New York Yankees. Yankee selection is Derek Jeter. Man, I'm proud of you. 
once you win, there's nothing else to do but to win again. Everything that came with it was not part of the dream. I don't have to be your best friend. I did it the best way I knew how. New York, New York. This past week marked the debut of a brand new seven-part documentary about the life and career of Derek Jeter, producers Spike Lee, and our next guest, who uh, last year was with us to discuss his Emmy Award-winning Last Dance, Michael Jordan series, Philly Zone, although I'm not supposed to talk about that. He's an L.A. guy now. Mike Tolan is back. No, wait, 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 wait. We're starting <laughs> off on the wrong foot. You can either rewind this and start over, or I'll just correct. I will never be an L.A. guy. I happen to reside in greater Los Angeles. Okay. Please, uh, if you want to talk about Tasty Cakes, we can. If you want to talk about <laughs> the Phillies being tired for the third wild card, not in as good a position as the Mariners, clearly. Um, Philly through and through. You can take the boy out of Philly, but, you know, can't take the Philly out of me. Well, not everybody can be as fortunate as the Mariners to have won 14 straight. The discussion I heard about the first half of the baseball season, even though it's way more than a half, having played 90-plus games, and Buster Olney and some other luminary were debating whether it was the Yankees at 64-28 and or the Mariners with their 14-game streak leading up to the break. I'm going with the latter. Like, who cares that the Yankees are winning, right? (laughs) They don't win the World Series. It's a bad season, as Derek Jeter would tell you. How about that segue? But the Mariners with, like – Ty France getting named to the All-Star team. Julio is the brightest young gun in the game today. 14. I mean, I, I, I'm, I'm thrilled for you guys, man. We need some new Thank blood. Thank you. Thank you very much. It's called the captain for obvious reasons, and I'm looking forward to it. Like everything else that you've done that I've enjoyed, Jeter wanted to do this, Mike. He approached Spike Lee. Why? Did it have anything to okay. do? Did it have anything to do with the thing in in Miami not working out and his reputation after that? Do you want the press story or the real story? I can Whatever give you. Whatever you either. want to give it. Give me both. How about that? Give me both. First of all, the Miami thing working out or not working out came way way later. Okay. And the Spike Lee part came way way later than the true origin story. So let's go back to, geez, 2019 pre-pandemic, right? So the last dance is well underway. Um, I'm talking to a lot of folks. In fact, Jeff Schwartz is a good friend of mine who runs Excel, had put me in touch with some of his guys, and they represent Tiger and Peyton and Cheater. And I got friendly with Casey Close and the team that represented Derek. And we started talking about whether Derek would be interested as he was approaching the Hall of Fame vote and starting to reflect on his career. Would he be interested in some long-form documentary thing? Another super private guy who media never quite got what they wanted from him, but somehow he gave him enough to placate them. He was so charming and personable and magnetic that like, okay, okay. It was, it, there were parallels between you know MJ's relationship with the media and the way Derek you know, just kind of navigated through the minefields of the biggest media capital of the world. I love discovery. I love the combination of big, splashy, super successful and and super popular figure who has also maintained an aura of mystery. MJ, certainly Derek also. So we started having conversations and, uh, you know, he's reluctant for obvious reasons, but he's got a new family and he's out of the game for five years or so. So I came up with an an idea. I said, look, I am willing to invest some time, energy, and money and get to know each other, kind of a mutual audition. What if we just shot an interview 
We'll pay for it. We'll travel to Miami. We'll do the interview. We'll set it up. And in the same way that Adam Silver told Michael Jordan 24 years ago when they were about to shoot the last dance, look, Michael, here's the thing. If we shoot this and you don't want to do anything with it, you'll just have the best home movie collection ever. So I sort of said the same thing to Derek. You'll control it um, if we don't go forward with it. I'll just hand the footage over to you and you'll have it. And let's, you know, it'll be great to get to know you and give you a sense of what the questions would be and how you feel about it and all. And so when I, I got a call back from his agent, Casey Close at Excel, and he said, well, actually, do you one better? Um, instead of just shooting a random interview, um, why don't you come to the house in January of 2020 now, when he hopefully will be getting the call from the Hall of Fame, at which he gets the news that he's been inducted into the Hall of Fame. Great. So we bring two cameras down and we shoot there. And it was kind of amazing to be there with this guy who's clearly going to get in first bout. The only question was whether he'd get in unanimously or not. Anyway, so we spent the day with Derek and his and his wife and the and the girls and uh, and then the next day we did an interview and it went really well and he said you know maybe not right away but pretty soon thereafter let's do this which of course means let's not start to get to the finish line let's let's try to get to the starting line meaning okay so now we have his willingness and eagerness to participate and we start putting together marketing materials and so forth and then um, we started talking about attaching a director and I mentioned to Derek that uh, I know you're close with Spike. Spike's a big Yankee fan. Um, he's obviously a big sports fan. He's a great filmmaker. What do you think? And Derek called Spike. Spike got on a Zoom with me and Casey and a few other guys and ultimately said, geez, I'd like, I'd love to do it. But you know me, I can't direct anything unless I'm given 110%, but I got a guy. And the guy was Randy Wilkins, who has kind of been through the Spike Lee's, the Spike Lee program. He was an intern. He was a student. He was his editor. Recently, he had been directing shows with Spike and with some others, and they were terrific. We pitched it to uh, ESPN. <laughs> I got to tell you a funny story about the negotiation. So, so we have Spike in as an executive producer with me, and we have Randy on as a director and Jimmy Pataro, who runs ESPN, is on with his whole team. And we're negotiating and you never know if they have any interest. Does he, you know, maybe he's a Red Sox fan or maybe he's not really a baseball guy. But in the in the middle of the negotiation, it's not it's not even really a negotiation yet. It's just a discussion. He goes, well, guys, I don't know if you know this, but I named my dog Jeter. Oh. <laughs> and one of his one of his producers texts me in the middle of the conversation. It says, oh, Jimmy, you don't have to, like, give away the store. <laughs> <laughs> anyway, they basically made a preemptive bid and took it off the market. And I was like the place I wanted to do it because we're better. And here we are uh, mm -hmm. two years later. Randy did a spectacular job. It was originally slated to be six hours. We coaxed them into a seventh because we wanted to get a good coda to the series and, and feature a little more family time and a little bit more about the Marlins and him taking over and having some successes there and hiring Kim Ng and um, building this great farm system. And then unfortunately it, it ended up not working out right. in the, in the long run. You know, he is the guy that you thought he was, but he's just giving us a lot more than you ever knew because he's at a place in his life like Michael was, where he's reflective, where he looks at this as a, as a legacy for him. He's got three little girls who obviously never saw him play, and this will be something for them. He's very open about when I, when I ask him, why did such a private guy agree to do this? He's like, well, you know, 
thinking about my family and thinking about having something they could always look at and see what daddy did, you know, before they were old enough. He's just so comfortable in his own skin. He's so authentic. He's so open. He and Randy had a terrific relationship. You know, we did about 90 interviews, but they spent dozens of hours with Derek and covered all all the ground, all the bases. Sorry for the bad pun. You know, we're very excited to finally get it out to the world this week. So, Mike, I've got a bunch of questions, and you just went nine minutes or ten minutes on the first question, <laughs> and, and you've given me fifteen minutes of your time. So we gotta we gotta hustle. They're, All right, they're, man. They're, they're, we'll, we'll, we'll relax the time <laughs> the time limits as long as we can talk more about Julio okay. and the Mariners, okay. man. Uh, I'm there, I'm gonna I'm gonna adopt them as my. Uh, could it be the Phillies and the Mariners? What odds could you get on that for a 2022 uh, World Series? We would take it. We would take it. Listen, uh, Jeter was an all-time great baseball player. There's no doubt, and I have a lot of reaction to what you just said. I'll save some of it for a little bit later on. What makes him interesting enough for a seven-part series, Mike? Well, first of all, five World Series is a good place to start. Okay, the Yankees were coming out of the doldrums, right? Let's face it. The era previous to Derek, you know, Don Mattingly, uh, an all-timer, really one of the great guys and great players, never quite make the Hall of Fame, never quite got to the big dance in October. And then Derek comes in, um, and they had that great series against you guys. It all, all roads re- lead back to Seattle. Was there ever a greater playoff series than that Yankees-Mariner series? And Derek is in the dugout. He's not on the active roster, but George, I think smartly had him in the dugout. I had a few guys who weren't on the active roster, but you know, to be in that dugout and, ex- dugout and experience what that was like and to have that disappointment and then come roaring back in 96. He talks very openly about um, how hard it was when he made the jump into pro ball and committed like 60 errors and below minors and crying every day and calling his mom and dad and saying, I want to come home. I made a huge mistake is what he said. He just felt like he was over his head. So he's very vulnerable for one thing. I don't know that people have ever seen that side. Speaking of his mom and dad, Dorothy and Charles, spectacular parents. If ever you want to see, you know, the apple not falling far from the tree. This is a biracial couple who met in Germany in the 60s, I believe, and came back and moved the family to Kalamazoo. And so Derek grew up as a biracial black man in Kalamazoo. And he talks about how that identity impacted how he looked at the world and how the world looked at him. And he was very open about it. And it's what kind of made him circumspect, kind of makes him very aware of his surroundings, always feeling like people are scrutinizing. And it's what led him to be uh, as private as he was. It wasn't really discussed all that much, Mike, during his 20-year career, right? We're going to find out and we're going to discuss this for the really for the first time in your in your project. Yeah, well, that's I think that was your question, like what makes it worth, you know, examining him at this level. And that that's one of I mean, at one point in the doc, a reporter who I don't need to name who will become a parent says Derek was basically colorless. And Derek says basically WTF in response to that. What does that mean? colorless. So he's very open about it. And the first episode, you see this incredible home movies that his mother took of the draft. Derek was supposed to go first in the draft, it seemed. Now, this is a kid who grew up with only one aspiration, which was to be the shortstop for the New York Yankees. And like, what are the odds? He falls to number six. And that's where the Yankees are sitting and they celebrate and they pick Derek Jeter and, you know, 
20 years of Yankee history. Mike, let's not bury the provocative here, and let's get it right out there. Was the Oh, let me guess. Let me guess. Yeah. Uh, <laughs> shortstop from Seattle was going to go to the Red no. Sox, didn't somehow end up in New York? No, no. No, infamous rumors of gift baskets for oh women. Oh, my God, you went to the gift basket? <laughs> you skipped A-Rod and went right no, to I'm the coming, gift basket. I'm baskets. coming back to A-Rod, but people are yelling at their podcast. <laughs> was it discussed? Are we going to finally find out whether it was rumor or fact or fiction that there were gift baskets for women during the Yankee days with, with the, the captain? Yes or no, Mike? Can we discuss that? You don't want me to give it away. You want me to just tease the viewers <laughs> and say, we address it head on and you oh. will find out for yourself. We went to the New York Post editor yeah. who planted the story and said, yo, what's up with this? Like, tell us where it comes from. Who was your source? Give us some uh, some evidence to support this. Now, we go back to Derek and we start talking about the parameters of this show and all the things we have to cover, which, we, which we'll always do, right? Like if, if we're going to ever do a, let's just say a Barry Bonds show or a Sammy Sosa show, we will say early on, you got to talk about steroids. Um, you can't do a show with any authenticity, credibility. And so we said to Derek, look, there are not a lot of hot button issues because of the, the way you navigated through the city and through your career and, you know, just exemplary. But we got to talk about Alex and we got to talk about the gift baskets. And he goes, what gift baskets? And I said, well, come on. I mean, you read page six. You you were there. You know what they wrote. And he looks me in the eye and he goes, do you think I'm that stupid to do that? And I said to him, no, I actually don't. And that's all you got to say in the interview. And so he says that and more. He addresses it directly. It's, I think, you know, you'll see for yourself, but I think we kind of dispel that. Alex Rodriguez and the relationship, very complicated. What happened between the two? Obviously, don't give it away, but but tell us about Alex and, and Derek Jeter over the years, Mike. Uh, early friends, although it was more like a friend, friendship of convenience and circumstance and like, sure, these two bright young superstars in the making and the famous Sports Illustrated cover with all the shortstops with their shirts off. And there was an article in one which you probably remember in Esquire when Alex was on the Mariners where he just talked about how other teams looked at the Yankees and how they looked at Derek as, you know, that's not really the guy that you worry about when you're facing the Yankees. Something in that vein. I think that was sort of the beginning of, of a, a different texture to the relationship. The great news is Alex came on, was very open to the point that it, it kind of almost felt like a little therapy session for him. He was really taking Randy's questions very seriously, very thoughtful. I got to give him a lot of credit for hitting it head on and admitting that some of his comments probably didn't sit that well and maybe caused a bit of a riff. At the end of the day, getting to know both these guys, they're just really different guys. It was a, you know, sort of a, a media creation and they obviously coexisted successfully as teammates. You know, Alex in 09 came up big in the postseason. Alex was very clear about who was going to play shortstop and who was going to play third base. You'll hear those comments, um, which I think surprised some people. And Derek says 
very clearly, look, we're fine. You know, people ask me about it every day. We got no problem. We're fine. It, he, he leads his life and I lead mine. They're very, very different people. And they'll both live happily ever after. Do they have any relationship? When they see each other, you know, they live in different parts of the country. And I don't think they go out of their way, but there's no animosity. When they see each other, it's very cordial. Was there ever a chance that Derek Jeter would play somewhere else, Mike, in the middle of his the, career? Do you ever talk about the, that? Yes, we do. Hey, we talk about everything, man. You keep hitting all the, <laughs> all the hot buttons. There was a very tough negotiation with Brian Cashman, and we, we get into that in depth where it was later on in his career. You know, did he have a year left, two, three, maybe five? And there was a discussion that, you know, maybe the Yankees weren't going to show the level of appreciation that most Yankees fans thought he deserved. Obviously, as great as his stats are, sixth most hits of all time, I think career 310 average, he's not a stat guy. Derek Derek was the captain for a reason. Derek was one of the great leaders in sports in, in, in my lifetime, the way he led by example, the way he balanced super competitiveness and will to win with somehow embracing the moment, somehow enjoying and showing the love of the game, leading by example. This is a role model. I'm not a Yankee guy, as you know, I'm a Philly guy, but like, I'm so impressed with looking back and seeing how he conducted himself and getting to know him and seeing that that's, I think, I think in the course of all this, we talked about like how you do anything is how you do everything. That's Derek. He does everything the same way with the same level of respect, dignity, integrity. Mm -hmm. He was clear about wanting to be a Yankee, but it, wanting to be respected. And it got really, I can't say that it was that close, but there were other names mentioned that maybe the Yankees would prefer as a shortstop. And we get into all that and we play it out. It's a lot of he said, she said. It's a really great chapter in the series. Mike, maybe the most the most memorable moment of his playing days was the flip. Let me guess. The flip play against Oakland. Yeah, Good call. And, and I was going to say the flip play in the playoffs to nail the A's runner at home not only is an iconic Jeter moment because of the play, but as much to do with when it happened, the yeah. year it happened, what was going on in our world Oof. when it happened. Do you remember the runner who didn't slide? Giambi? Was it Giambi? Yeah, but but the other Giambi, Jeremy, Jeremy, Jeremy Giambi. Yeah. Yes, yeah. The Yankees are on the ropes a little bit, looking really bleak, and that run that was a, that was Musina against Zito, if I'm not mistaken, and it was a turned out to be a one nothing game. That play we see from about 12 different angles. Like we go back to the library. MLB was really great about digging out stuff for this show. And like you see it from so many angles and you can't believe like what's he doing there? And one of the reporters says it's considered a great instinct play, which I think is a fair assessment. But there's another way of looking at it. Like you don't just happen to drift over there by instinct. You drift over there because you've practiced cutoff plays and you've studied and you've seen film and you've just like, you, you know, as Derek said, like I'm the third cutoff guy on that play. And he missed Spencer, the right fielder missed the first two. And so I got to be there. I don't know that there's any other shortstop in the big leagues that would have been there. That's what separates Derek. Those are the intangibles. And when you try to, you know, going back to that contract discussion, how do you, 
how do you properly value Derek's contribution to the team? He's not only in the right spot, but like, you know, the only way to get it there as quickly as he could. And Posada says, if you look at it, you see, I'm like moving up to get the ball off the infield grass in hopes of throwing out the runner at second base. But, oh, oh my God, Derek's got the ball. I got to get back and like just swipes and nails Jeremy and like save the day. Um, and the Yankees beat the A's and move on. It's there's so many man. It's just like who hits a like he's not even a home run hitter, but he hits a home run for his three thousand hit and goes five for five and gets the winning hit. Like who creates that kind of story storybook ending? And the last day of his career, the Orioles score two runs to tie it up so that Derek can come up in the bottom of the ninth and get an opposite field base hit as a walk-off in his last at bat for the Yankees. I mean, as Derek said often, it's like, you know, if you were writing a script, I'd, I'd go like, you know, pull it back a little bit, man. This is a little, <laughs> this is going a little too far. Well, it sounds like a winner. I have not seen it yet. I will tell you that my, my opinion, my personal opinion as a sports fan outside of New York is that the biggest, I don't know, obstacle that you've got is what you talked about at the beginning, which is, those of us not in New York and not Jeter lovers kind of found him to be boring, kind of always down the middle, never said anything stimulating. And I wonder whether those sports fans will skip this because they say, oh, Jeter for seven seven shows? What could he say that's going to be interesting? He's never said anything that's been stimulating. Well, first of all, I didn't say the word boring. You did, just for okay. the record. Okay. Sec- second of all, there are two other guys that did pretty well named Jordan and Brady, who probably you could fill in the blank and say the same thing about them in terms of the way they treated the media during their okay. career. Okay. And that's and that's why you watch something like this, because they're far enough away from their career that they've now gone to a more reflective state where they will finally reveal another side of them. And I think Randy, Randy Wilkins did a great job of getting at it. And uh, listen, man, if you watch it and um, it doesn't work for you, send me your cable bill. I'll, I'll give you your money back. <laughs> The name is Mike Tolan. He's an Emmy Award winning director. He's done TV. He's done films. He loves his sports. He loves his Philadelphia roots. The Hank Aaron thing that he did was beautiful. The The Last Dance was wonderful. And now it's this one. The Captain. Seven installments on uh, on Derek Jeter, his life both on and off the field. What a great privilege it is to have you back on Mitch Unfiltered, Mike. My pleasure, Mitch. Anytime. There's just no question that John Waterstrat owner of Fireside Home Solutions, is one of my heroes. Why? Well, his team helped us reimagine our backyard patio with a brand-new fireplace unit that's been awesome. And number two, he's the title sponsor of all major championship pools that have been incredible on Mitch Unfiltered. How's that for an intro, John? Wow, that's pretty cool. (laughs) Thanks, Mitch. So what's new in the world of fireplaces and garage doors? I know during summertime when we're on golf courses, we're not thinking about fireplaces, but that would be a mistake if you'd like to have a new one come football season. That's right, Mitch. Can't express enough that during these warm months when we want to be warm and we want to be cozy, we're not thinking about those things while it's warm outside. But when we're ready to get to that fall season, that first crisp 
fall day, we want to be able to turn on our products, whether you need your service or you want to buy a new one. We're here. The schedule is a little bit looser, products becoming more available. And so great time to buy right now. Give us a sense of turnaround time as it compared to when we were in the in the heart of the pandemic, John. Yep. When we were the heart of the pandemic, it was six to eight weeks. We could probably get something done with less than two to three weeks now. Ooh. And so it's really good. Product, again, is available. Our installers are waiting to get some products in there. And again, it's a great time to buy because right now, if you wanted to get it done quickly, we can get you on the schedule pretty quickly. What I love about you guys is the process, how you came to our house a couple of times, you evaluated the space, and then you come up with different options for different budgets. That's what you guys do at Fireside. It's really important for us to help you design, select. And so coming to the showroom is just one part of the process. We want to be able to help you look at your space, help you design that perfect fireplace. And then again, make sure all the expectations are met so the installers know what they're doing and they can quickly and efficiently get that product put in your house. John, I'm not going to let you go. I know you're a huge Seahawks fan and local sports fan. What do you think the first post-Russell Wilson season is going to look like here in Seattle? A lot of pain? Uh, a little. I think it's going to be painful, but I think we're going to be presently surprised. I think our defense will be much improved. We'll start running the ball more. And as we looked at it back in the days we won the Super Bowl, defense wins championships. Fireside Home Solutions has been a major part of the reason why we are now more than 200 episodes into this journey. If you are a Mitch Unfiltered fan, you enjoy the show, then I ask one thing of you. Begin your search for a new fireplace unit at firesidehomesolutions.com. Hey, it's great to have Daniel CEO Lindsey Schwartz back with us on Mitch Unfiltered, despite his complaints that my questions are too long. Lindsey, how's everything at Daniel's? How was June, a month of celebration? Hey, Mitch, great to be back. Yeah, you know what? I, uh, I'm i used to the long questions, so I can handle it. It's all good. June is great. You know that we're all about celebrations at Daniels and lots of opportunities to celebrate in June. Kind of starts out with proms, goes into graduations and Father's Day. It's just great to see families celebrating, young people celebrating. June is a special month for us. One of the underrated layers and elements to Daniel's broiler is summertime on the outside decks and seating, and you offer options at all of your locations. Yeah, I think what what's great about Daniels and, and one of the reasons we've been around so long is the locations that we have. There's three great locations with outdoor seating. You got Daniels Leshy with views of Lake Washington and Mount Rainier. You got Bellevue up top looking over Lake Washington at the Seattle skyline and Lake Union. You see the, the seaplanes, you see the sailboats, lots of great things to see in the summertime here. Yes, and I apologize in advance about my last question, which will be lengthy. But Max Levy, who buses at South Lake Union and loves it there, loves all of his co-workers, at times complains that Bellevue has an unfair advantage by the name of Jim Washburn. Tell everybody in our audience who Jim Washburn is, Lindsay. Yeah, it's true. It does have an unfair advantage, and we're so lucky to have Jim Washburn. He's the piano player at Daniels Bellevue, and if you can believe this, he's been with us for over 30 years. He's been entertaining people for th over three decades. He's there Thursdays through Saturdays from 7 to 11 p.m. People have been coming to see him for years and years. Everybody loves him, young and old. He's one of the few guys who's been around as long as you and I have. And uh, for those who haven't seen him, get up there and see him because it's, it's a real treat. Summertime at Daniel's, outside seating, all kinds of special opportunities. We love Daniel's Broiler, a great partner. 
since back in the radio days, Daniel's Broiler, a world-class steakhouse. Unfiltered. Other stuff segment time, Daniel Timothy O'Neill. I don't care what Jim Moore says. I love the dang apostrophe. I love following Danny O'Neill, pimples, gray hairs in his nose and all. If you don't like it, it's okay, Mitch. It's okay. (laughs) I kind of like the old five-year-old, five years ago, Danny O'Neill better than I think I like the new one, the new mellow. The feistier one? Yeah, I think I like the feistier one. Man, I cursed. Jim and I just (laughs) screamed at each other through an entire commercial break. Oh, you Like, just screamed at each other, yeah. Like, at one point, Wyman came back in, and he was like, you guys have to stop. Like, and that was that it was after that. It was a couple days after that. I don't think Jim and I talked other than during the radio show the rest of the week. And then at the end of that week, I decided that I would never, I would never let Jim make me mad. Well, let's not let Jim dominate the other stuff segment. Like he did segment one. Okay. (laughs) You got now before we, before we begin the other stuff segment, and maybe you would say this is part of the other stuff segment. The video of the gray-haired older guy in the Padres hat bumping kids trying to get autographs at the All-Star festivities. Did you see the video making the rounds? He's I like sh- he's like jockeying for position, putting a baseball. What do His we think face, of old guys? looks so urgent. What, 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 what do we think of old guys that want autographs? That doesn't There's, sit well with me. Old guys that want autographs. There is one scenario in which it's okay. You're getting the autograph to give to someone else. Oh, he wasn't. It did not. Look <laughs> <right>. <laughs> he wasn't. <laughs> I will fully admit that yeah. I am someone who is not an autograph hound. When okay. I was a teenager, I liked autographs. I've never been passionate about them as an adult. And I, I watch people, I live near the Mandarin Oriental Hotel here in Manhattan, which is a fairly upscale hotel fairly? right next to Central Park. Fairly? Yeah. yeah, and it's right next to Central Park. So there's celebrities that stay there. And so you do see autograph seekers out in front. Yeah. Um, And I just always, it's a weird, I don't understand that one. I know everybody's got weird things that sort of float their boat and like whatever you like, all the power to you. But the adult, Adult autograph hound in situations where there were kids. It doesn't sit well with me. Okay, good. We got out of that one pretty fast. I'll throw another. This one's going to be a harder one to get out of fast because I think everybody's got an opinion. David Big Poppy Ortiz was inducted into the Hall of Fame back on Sunday. He sure was. I believe he was a a former Mariner who was traded in 1995 for Dave Hollins. Right? Dave Arias. I thought Hollins. No, no, it's Holland, but I think his name wasn't oh, David no, Ortiz. No, 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 it wasn't Ortiz back then, yes. But it was David Holland, Dave Holland said he got a third baseman for the stretch run in 95. He tested positive, according to the New York Times, for steroids in 2003. Now, that mm-hmm. was before it was illegal in, in Major League Baseball, which happened in 2004. It was a leaked positive test to the New York Times. Reggie Jackson and Goose Gossage, members of the Hall of Fame, had announced that they were not going to show up on Sunday for the induction to make a <laughs> statement, but they decided, what do you laugh? And they decided to go anyway. Gossage said, I decided to just let it go. So you know what? The way I feel now is just let everyone in. They might as well let Pete in, Bonds in, Clemens in, all of them. We got no character clause in this shit. 
So let's just drop the character bullshit. Reggie Jackson said, I mean, what are you going to do about it? Guys talk to me about Piazza, Yvonne Rodriguez. I mean, what the F? So why deny this guy? At the same time, we'll make it this part B of the other stuff topic that we're on. Pete Rose, at 81 years old, is being granted permission to go onto the field for the celebration of the 1980s or 1980, is it Philadelphia? Did, they, did he Phillies. win it in Philadelphia? Yep. World Series champion reunion. And it's the first time that baseball has granted him permission to go into a ballpark since the whole gambling controversy broke out. Oh, no. He got interviewed by Jim Gray one time, didn't he? Oh, maybe for an all-star game? Yeah. I, I'm wrong about that. <laughs> but some of these some of these reunions. You remember that when yeah, Jim Gray was I, just laying the wood to him? Yeah. <laughs> yes. But most of these reunions, he hasn't been allowed to go. Right. Right? Okay. So um, have at it. Big Poppy, Pete Rose, steroid guys. Where are we on this? I am of the opinion that those games happened. They were important in baseball's history. And because a bunch of baseball writers have a hard time sort of getting over the idea of baseball as some sort of sacred pastime as opposed to a sport populated by crass men. Like, I I don't understand why those guys aren't in. Do something. Put a syringe next to some of their plaques. <laughs> like seriously, build build the build that wing. Call it the steroid wing or something like that. Like there's the, the idea, and and it gets into how baseball sort of honors itself and celebrates itself. It's weird. Barry Bonds is one of the best hitters of all time. Like he's one of one of the very best. Like might be the very best. Like he and Babe Ruth statistically are up there. He's not in the Hall of Fame. That 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 makes no sense. And then to say, well, okay, we're just going to put in the guys that we know did it. Like the whole thing is, it's it trickles down from baseball's insistence upon taking itself so freaking seriously, as if it is the the moral claw. David Ortiz should be in. And by the way, Goose Gossage is a jackass. And if anybody should be thrown out for being a jackass or some morals clause, like he's a jerk, has always been an enormous, insufferable jerk. But guess what? It's baseball. And there's a bunch of those guys. And a lot of them were really good players. And we shouldn't throw jerks out of the Hall of Fame either. That was pretty good, Danny. You like that? Yeah. So you like the steroid? You threw the, you like yeah. the syringe? Yeah. I like the syringe. I like the gossip shot. Here's what I would say, and and maybe this is me in my old age having gone awry myself in life and trying to work myself back into the good graces. Pete Rose, can, can I just say something about Pete Rose? And I don't even particularly like Pete Rose. I didn't like him as a player. He always annoyed me. I, don't, I never really loved the personalities. I'm not a Pete Rose guy, but I'm going to say so. The guy's 81 years old. It was never proven that he bet against his team so that he was tossing games or, right. or you know, taking a dive. It, he was betting on his own team that he was managing and maybe playing for whatever. And yeah, they threw him out of baseball. And this is 40 years now. He's yes. 80. He's the all-time hit king. He's 81 years old. When is enough enough? And for somebody in baseball to say, oh, if we let him in now and put him in the Hall of Fame, 
What's the message we're sending to these kids who we don't want them to bet on baseball? Even though, by the way, they're partnering up with gambling, right? Exactly. Okay. How but, could you? How could? But I don't even like, want to. I'm not even go. That's the low hanging fruit. That's the low hanging fruit. Even though they're they're partnering up with gambling, what's the message we're sending these guys to not bet on baseball? Well, yeah, I'll, I'll tell you the message if you let him in. I'll tell you the message. The message is we will crucify you for forty years. <laughs> I'm not even joking. We will, and then we will allow you in when you're about to die. What's wrong with that message? Am I wrong? No. That's the message. Pete Rose was found to be betting on baseball. So what we did to him is we literally crucified him for 40 years. And then when he was an old shriveled up man, we said, okay, you can go in now. What's wrong with that as a punishment? That's a pretty good deterrent. That's really funny, Mitch. It's not that funny, though. I don't even think it's that funny. It's hilarious. Here's what we will do. For 40 years, you will be denied access. You will have to have baseball what card did they signings do to that guy? Honest down to God, the street. What did they do to that guy for 40 years? And I'm not saying he didn't deserve it. They put that guy out on the frick. They did what, what Dino on the Flintstones Open did to Fred. He picked him up and he put him outside and didn't let him back in, right? I mean, you, you look at what he's done to make money since then. And it's sad. It's sad. They did that. To, that's the pun. That's a hell yes. 40 years. That's a you're going to get you're going to get turned into the court jester who <laughs> is showing up in Cooperstown each year to sign at the card shop and has to leave when the rest of the Hall of Famers come into town because he's he's not welcome there. He's going to show up in Vegas and do these. Sign- yeah. And then when you're about to die, we'll let you in the Hall of Fame. OK, fine. That's the message. That's a great message to me. I would agree. I would not want to. I would not want to bet on baseball if that were the message. Even if I was getting in when I'm an old man about to die, I yeah. wouldn't. I don't want to be crucified for 40 years. So, anyway, that's my that's my spiel. I tend. I don't know if I'm exactly with you on the syringe and the steroids guy, but we'll uh, we'll table that for another P episode when you and I get together. Uh, you want to throw one or two at me because I've got another an, another another handful. To throw at you, yes. I've got, I've got, I've got yes. one I want to throw your way. Yes. it relates to gambling, so we're in the same vicinity. Okay, uh, a group of men in India, Mitch. You're, you're aware that cricket is a big sport in India. Yeah, I don't know exactly what cricket is, but yes, I do know. It's got the flat stick. Yeah, it's yeah, played I, I in can, former I can English colonies. It, yes, yeah, but we we both have the same level of understanding there. Yeah. A group of men in uh, in India came to understand that cricket betting had become very popular in Russia. I see. And they started staging games that looked like the India Premier League, which is the top cricket okay. operation. Okay. It was in a small village. They had big lights. They had uniforms on. They hired a group of unemployed men or seasonal workers from around this village to play the parts. They got an impersonator. To serve, there's a famous announcer in India Premier League cricket, apparently a guy named Mr. Bogle, who they they hired somebody who sounded like him. They broadcast these games over YouTube that were then carried in a series of pubs that took bets in Russia. The umpires had walkie-talkies and they would log. These, these Russian customers were then placing bets with the bartender. 
Jeez. over what was going to happen and oh what they God. thought and what they thought <laughs> was find this story. This it was fantastic. in the New York Times. It's it's, it's the best gambling scandal I've ever heard of. So they're they're placing bets. Yeah. And then the umpires have a walkie talkie and they're hearing from the guys that are running the gambling league. Tell them what what outcome they need. So they'll make the most money. And the reason that they got tipped off, the reason that it got foiled is one of the policemen in the village called somebody and said, there's something really weird going on up here because they're they're like early in the morning. And and then sort of midday, they've got these games. They have all these big floodlights. Sometimes it's the middle of the night that they're hosting these games, which they were playing to get the betters from Russia involved. So then they found out about this gambling thing, which which is that a crime? If if you're staging an entirely alternate event no. and these people are dumb enough to bet on no, it, shouldn't th- you get to keep it? Yes, yes. <laughs> I think that there is a some sort of a stupidity line in life that once you cross over it, nothing becomes out, uh, outside a fair game. Don't so you think? Here, yes. Now yeah. here's my question because obviously yeah. a, a, an experienced cricket fan would be able to see like, these are a bunch of schlubs from the village. These are not, these are not world-class cricket players. Yeah. What American sport would be easiest to simulate a fake game like that? A fake top league game basketball has 10 people. I think football would be the hardest. I think, I think, I think American tackle football would be the most difficult. Tennis. Are we allowed? Ooh. Does it have to be team? Oh, tennis is a good one. Golf. Is very popular, Benning. No man. Golf. Like God, wouldn't you be able to tell? Like if you get some, like those no. pros are so good. Wouldn't you like, no, I, I think why. I'd be able to tell. No, that's why you wouldn't be able to tell. Because they're so good that they could subtly mess up and you would have no idea. That's how good they are. If that makes sense to you. I don't know if yeah. that makes intellectual sense. If, I, if I'm um, Tiger Woods in my prime and I hit one, I could hit one 45, 40 feet right in the middle of the green instead of two feet where I stick it and change uh. the whole outcome. Because I'm, because I'm that good at controlling where the golf ball goes. Okay. I don't know. I'm not. You're asking me on the. Uh, I, I don't know. I don't know the answer. I, is there a right answer or a wrong answer? No. Well, I was going to say because I was thinking more of like if you were told you have to get twelve schlubs from your village to simulate a game. Yes. yes. Which which one could you get to be Basketball, closest I, resembling? I was going. I think it's soccer. Soccer. <laughs> soccer. <laughs> All right. I'm ringing the bell. Um, Daniel Vogelback got traded. <laughs> so Dude, he's huge. And I'm glad that that's your reaction because really my my story for the other stuff segment is exactly what you're doing, which is why do I giggle every time I say the name and see the name Daniel Vogelback? I don't know. Uh, He got traded (laughs) and I laughed. He's still playing. He's got 12 homers and 34 RBIs. He's on the Mets now. I remember loving Mike Montgomery so much. I was so furious. Was that Jerry DePoto? Must have been. It was I was DePoto. so furious was when they traded Mike. I remember going on like a six-week tirade on Mitch in the morning because I loved Mike Montgomery. He was like a left-handed fireballer who could mm-hmm. both come out of the bullpen or start a game. And then he went to the Cubs, and I think he helped them win a World Series. I believe he was the pitcher of record when they won the World Series. I think he was on the mound and when Daniel they won it. Daniel Vogelback. We got him, and we all knew when he came, every one of us, except for Jerry, knew, okay, this guy, 
Come on, what can this guy do? He's a he softball makes, player. He he made an all-star game. I know he did. I know he did. <laughs> but that's because they needed one and they were desperate for a, a Mariners player. Okay, I'm done with that. I'm ringing my bell on my... Um, I'm very uncomfortable with this video. Did you see the video of Kelsey Plum, former University of Washington superstar basketball player, receiving a Tom <laughs> Brady signed jersey in oh, the mail? I thought you were going to talk about the little tiny trophy she got for the All-Star oh, sorry, game. Yes, it's very tiny. Did you I did see, see that? that. Yes, I did see that. <laughs> it was mini. Okay. It was a little okay. mini trophy. Did you see the video of her getting the jersey? No. You have sent her yet? a Brady jersey? Brady sent it. So you don't know the story. Brady and her came across one another at the WNBA All-Star Game. You don't have to look it up. It's okay. They came across each other in the WNBA All-Star Game, and she's like in love with Tom Brady and big fan. And she went over to him. She was afraid to approach him. There's video of this. And then he shook her hand or he touched, she touched him. And she was like, ah! And the, like as they were warming up for the WNBA All-Star, there was this big thing, how she adores Tom Brady and whatever. And then good guy Tom Brady, a few weeks later, this weekend, sent a, she got a big package. It was captured on Instagram. She opens up the package. It's his jersey. He wrote on the 12, hey, Kelsey, you're the best, well, you know, whatever. And she's dancing around. She put it on. They, she, I think he even sent her the, 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 the pants, the football pants, the whole thing. She put them on. It was just this very adorable, cute, lovey moment. And I of course, Slickhawk would say, Mitch, you hate everything. So I'm going to tell you why I hate this. I'm the only guy who hates it, by the way. Because it furthers my contempt for this post-Patriots Tom Brady that I find myself liking more and more. I don't want to like. What do I have to do to not like Tom Brady? I was a very, very happy guy not liking Tom Brady for all of those years that he was in New England. And since he's come to the Bucks, he's kind of funny. He's kind of charming. I kind of like him. He's kind of self-deprecating now. He's sending out videos. He's Mr. Nice Guy. He's available. He's approachable. He's getting drunk in, in parades on boats. He's like, he's like somebody that I, I'm enjoying, and I don't want to enjoy Tom Brady. So what I, I'm, I'm very I'm mixed up about the whole thing. Mitch, why don't you want to enjoy Tom Brady? Because I want to hate Tom Brady. Why? Why do you want to hate him? I don't know. I... Because he's got a perfect life and he had he was on those Patriots team and I'm a Dolphins fan and yeah. I, I he took 20 years of my Dolphins fandom away from me. We were not allowed to win a division for approximately one quarter of my life because of Tom Brady. Well, what he was going to go to your team. Were you going to hate him then? No, too? no, I wouldn't hate him then. <laughs> no, it's I a don't good know. Question. Like he, what happened? What happens when you lose your arch enemy? Like he, what, he what, just, what happens? Am like, I wrong you, about that? That he's become a lot more likable since the day he left Foxborough for Tampa. He like decided to open up and say, hey, I'm just a human being like everybody else. I'm going to be available to you guys. This is this is the shtick he's had for his entire career. We just didn't see it that much because oh. of how protective Bill Bell. This is kind of what he's always gone for is that okay. I'm as close to an everyman as I can possibly be. I, here's what I would say, Mitch, like just blame his marketing people. Yeah. He's got different marketing guys now. Like that's, this isn't, I this isn't anything. This isn't about might him. might be a it's nice about, guy. Maybe. Could be. I sure. I don't want him to be a nice guy. 
No. That's no fun. <laughs> All right, two other football stories for me, and then you can go. Um, another guy I don't like, and you would say, why don't you like Jim Ursay, the, the Colts, Colts owner? And I would say to you, I have no idea why. I just never have really liked Jim Irsay. There's something about him that rubs me the wrong way. He yeah, paid, I would he, agree with that. He's kind of a blowhard. Yeah, he, he paid $6 million for Muhammad Ali's championship belt from the George Foreman, like 74 Zaire. Rumble in the jungle. Rumble in the jungle. And and he's now owned, he owns that belt, which is just more ammunition not to like him for some What's reason. What's similar to, how different is that from a grown man getting an autograph? Oh, it's different. Is it? He's not wrestling with, with that's true with twelve year olds and eight year olds. Not to try literally, to get, the, but to get his pen, to get his pen and his baseball out in front. No, he's just dropping his checkbook on him instead. He, and yeah, there's yeah, probably yeah. some twelve year old out there that would really want Muhammad Ali's championship yeah, belt there, and he's not. just saying, "I'm going to say six million dollars and bigfoot you." Kyler Murray's five-year, $230 million contract, $160 million guaranteed. Should we Seahawks fans be happy about that? Is he even any good? We should, we should be celebrating that in Seattle, shouldn't we? Yes. And all of the, <laughs> and all of the owners are celebrating it because it stopped the price of the brick going up after Deshaun Watson's deal. Kyler Murray wanted a lot more than that. He and did? the fact that oh, Kyler Murray that. took this. Yeah, the fact the fact that Kyler Murray took this means that the that Arizona held strong about how high they were going to go and that the quarterback inflation stopped because Kyler Murray's a good quarterback and I don't think if anybody knows if he's if if he's going to be a great quarterback. Like he's a, he's good enough. He's he's an average and slightly above average starting quarterback in the NFL right now who depends on his legs an awful lot. We'll see how he ages. If you're the Seahawks, like yeah, no, Go I think it. that's I right. think that's overall good news. You know what I say to them? Good on you, Arizona. <laughs> Go ahead, you're up, Danny. I ring the bell on me. Go. I came across uh, a young man who is being scouted out of China. Uh, he's playing uh, baseball. His his on his travel documents. He's going to be playing at Rockport, which is a Division two college it, outside of Kansas City. Uh, first name unknown. FNU is the the first name given on his travel documents. Uh, his he's goes by DJ. They attribute his strong throwing arm. He plays center field, Mitch. To him throwing rocks at grazing yak when he was younger. And I desperately want at some point, this guy's 23 years old, playing in college. He wants to get into the big leagues. He's one of like half a dozen graduates of this Chinese baseball development mm -hmm. system that's that, that Major League Baseball is built over there. I desperately want that to show up in a baseball scouting report. That he, he's, he honed, he honed his, his, his throwing ability by hurling rocks at yak. And it was specifically said he just tried to throw it near the yak to warn them off of where they were. It kind of, kind of, uh, deter them away. I used to remark that Charles Barkley yes. has it really good from the standpoint that somewhere along the way, he picked up the proverbial line that we all have to be careful not to cross. Yes. And he moved it. There are like a handful of people in our world that literally can do things that other people can't do. Because they are just them. <laughs> Charles Barkley is one of those people. Am I wrong about that before I, I no. give you the story? No. I'm right. 
He can yes. say he can say things on TV on that around the NBA show that will literally get other people fired that the rest of us will chuckle and say, oh, Chuck. Right? Yeah. Okay. Charles Barkley is speaking to the Live Tour. I saw this. He is going to play at the Donald Trump uh, golf course where the Live Tour is having their next tournament in New Jersey in the Pro-Am. He's got three years left on his TNT contract at $30 million, so $10 million a year he gets from TNT. And he once was quoted just a couple of weeks ago saying, if somebody gave me $200 million when they asked him about Phil Mickelson, I'd kill my relative and a relative that I liked, I'd kill. Now, any of us said that, we would be in the boss's office no matter. Everybody else just chuckled because that's, that's Chuck. If Charles Barkley becomes a broadcaster for the Live Tour for some obnoxious amount of money, A... Are we going to blame him for taking that money? And B, can Turner figure out a way, because he's Chuck, to let him do both? The golf for the Saudi Arabian group and TNT's NBA. Because nobody else, anybody else who took a broad, any other broadcaster who took that live tour job, would be ostracized from whatever current jobs that they would like. Literally, the lock would be changed immediately. But I, in my mind, I almost question whether Turner will figure out a way to say, oh, that's Chuck being Chuck. We're going to let him go do that. I think there's a decent chance that Turner will. I think there's a decent chance because, and just what you said, I really hope he doesn't, man. I really hope he doesn't. I, I love Chuck. I, I think you Chuck's do. hilarious, and he is a truly charismatic, like, really fun guy. I really hope he doesn't do that. God, I, I really hope he doesn't. He's going where the money goes. You know that. And he and Greg Norman have been having lunch and dinner, and they've been chatting and laughing and hugging. He's, he's already rich. No, I don't know that he's as rich as he wants or needs to be. He, he's another guy who doesn't, doesn't mind putting a few pesos on a game. That's true. And has lost probably a lot of money over the years on a blackjack table somewhere. But um, he's going Ugh. where the money is. Chuck has always gone where the money is. That's going to that's gonna hurt my heart when it happens. Can I give you my two favorite Chuck things that he said that would have gotten other people Can fired? Can you do them in 30 seconds? Yes. Okay, go. When when Wang Zhizhu was playing uh, him. Big, big, tall seven-footer, yep. Yep. He, 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 they're doing a highlight, and it was at a point where the U.S., they had a U-2 spy plane that had been it crashed in China and we were trying to get it back. And Chuck just goes, I don't think we should let Wang play until they give us our spy plane back. <laughs> I'm not going to do the other one. That's 30 seconds. You want to go or you want more from me? Your choice. I, I've got I've got one more. Okay. I've got a few more. The second thing that is crashed in the wake of the crypto bust, yes. you into Bitcoin? No, I'm not into that. No. Well, Bit Bitcoin's had some huge problems. The crypto bros, as they're called, uh, the the bottom has fallen out of uh, cryptocurrency. The first thing to go down was the resale watch market. Rolexes, Rolexes that were selling for twice as much as they 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 were on they they were suggested retail price. The bottom fell out. The second thing, Mitch, I read it. Are, are either your boys into sneakers, resale sneakers? No. Air Jordans? No. I mean, they love, their, they love their sneakers, but I'm aware of that of that business and that, yeah. It, hundreds of dollars. Yeah. Hundreds of dollars people will pay more than it costs 
to get these designer sneakers, Air Jordans, specific color schemes. The bottom's falling out of that market. Because of the crypto. Because of the crypto and the overall economic reception recession. And that means that you're going to have you're going to have tons of sneaker heads who have hundreds of pairs of these Nike Air Jordans that they were going to sell for a thousand dollars that they're going to have to eat. And I think that's fantastic. (laughs) Absolutely beautiful, including my friend Merlin, whom I like a great deal. And when he was talking about, hey, we should go buy some sneakers. I was like, that is the dumbest thing to invest in. (laughs) Yeah. Love Merlin. I have three last ones, and I don't know that any of them are worthy of episode 200, but I'll throw them out there to you. I feel like this Brett Favre Mississippi State welfare fraud story gets dirty and dirtier by the minute. God, it's horrible. KD joins TikTok. I'm not on TikTok. I know you are. And everybody's everybody's talking about how KD finally joined TikTok and his first TikTok. Do you call it a TikTok? Your first post? Yes, what you is make it? TikToks. Okay. His first TikTok was him looking into the camera and he says, Yo, how how you work this shit? Okay. <laughs> and Vince McMahon is retiring from the WWE after uh improper behavior with some employees that he paid off. He's 76 years old. I never followed WWE. But I thought I was going to ask you whether that's a story, whether that's a, a big story, a small story, or no story at all. Well, it's a big story in this sense. It must be absolutely awful, the information that has yet to come out about Vince McMahon to make him quit on his own. Like, he's just saying, all right, I'm retiring. Like, it must be th- that man's willingness to, to dig his heels in and the way he has skirted scandal within. And there's there's an interesting parallel between he and Donald Trump. And they're kind of, they're a little bit mirror images of themselves in that Vince McMahon would really like to be taken as seriously as Donald Trump is among the truly wealthy. Vince never done that. And Donald Trump would really like to be seen as strong and and menacing and and that sort of that that macho tough uh, bravado that Vince McMahon has. It's I cannot imagine what the actual details are to make Vince quit. Well, a lot has already come out. So you're saying, yeah, let's wait. Way and see worse. What, what's coming? Yeah. Way worse. If it ever comes out. Yes. Yeah. Yes. And Brett Favre. God, not a good guy. It's, Five million dollars. He helped kind of siphon from it's like the poorest state that we have in the United States, Mississippi. It was intended for, uh, for the, for the homeless and for the poorest people in the poorest state and $5 million end up building a new volleyball at his alma mater. And uh, 1.1 million goes into his pocket for doing appearances that he never did. I mean, just that whole story is so vitally uncomfortable for me. What I don't understand so is he broke? I don't think so. It, and maybe, maybe I, I just so. don't because because this it, as it started out and Brett Favre and people who haven't followed it, Brett was friends with a guy and they were in an investment together and then they were talking to a series of government employees and they got the people within this government office to invest in the company that they were with and also to like donate to the construction of a volleyball facility at Mississippi state. Yeah. Southern Miss, Miss, which is where his daughter was playing. Right. And 
at first it was just like, hey, this is okay. We recognize that I got paid for these things that I didn't do. So I'll just give the money back. And now that hasn't really happened. But not only that, but he hasn't covered the money that shouldn't have been given for the volleyball center. Like this, this public entity very clearly should not have donated to no. that volleyball center. Correct. And he hasn't stepped in to cover for that. Well, he which, gave back the $1.1 million that he got. Correct. But not correct. interest. They, they're suing him for interest. For interest. The and, is, then, yeah, yeah. and then the other, the other donations that this public agency made at his direction, he hasn't covered for no, those. No, no. It's, it's gross. It really is. He's gross. Yeah. And when I see those commercials with Jerry Rice for the thing that goes around their waist, does that thing really work? That I back thing, that brace. How, how much, like how much money are those two guys making from that? Do they own part of that company? For, why are they doing those spots? Yeah, I don't know. They're not very. It's, I always wonder about those low rent sort of products where you're like, how the heck did you end up doing that? Yeah. Like when Fred McGriff yeah. was on that ad oh, for yeah, with Tommy Mansky's. Yeah, the big hat with the high crown. Yeah. yeah like what? Yeah. Like how did, what's I, the I story know. behind I that? Know. Like Russell Wilson and Eat the Ball. Do you remember that? No, but I think we he, should do a documentary on that. He on sold football shaped bread, Mitch. It was bread. <laughs> it was shaped, shaped like a football. You know what the, you know what the, the name of the company was? No. Eat the Ball. Yeah. Football shaped bread. When I first heard about it, I thought it was like a charity thing in which they were just going to drop footballs and it would be like all the nutrients a young man needs for throughout an entire day. And it was going to be like to fight world hunger. Nope. Just football shaped bread. Go buy it in your supermarket. Football bread. Daniel Timothy O'Neill, the dang apostrophe. Don't listen to what Jim Moore's got to say. It's a it's a good read. It's fun. He does some podcasts. He does some YouTube videos. You do a lot of technology that I don't even do. The dang apostrophe. And he's a he's a wonderful. I don't want to call you a fill-in or a sub. You're just a wonderful friend to come on episode 200 when your wife is celebrating a birthday. I know. Happy birthday, Sharon. Happy birthday, Sharon. Thank you for this. I, I am so appreciative appreciative and in debt that I'm going to tell you that because because of this. And because of the fact that I'm going to go on a little golf trip tomorrow, there's no 200p. You've been given a Wednesday free of Mitch. Are you going to do okay with that? Are you going to be able to live without me? There's going to be a hole in my day. (laughs) And at some point, I'm going to wonder what's missing today. And I'm like, it's my conversation with Mitch. And then I'm going to try to think back to the hour we just spent together and try and let that try and let that sort of fill in the void and and sort of provide me solace in my moment of sorrow. Which leaves me with two reactions to what you just said. Mm-hmm. Good on you. <laughs> and this Wednesday, I want you, you do you, Danny. <laughs> you do you. All right. Uh, you want to give the old 200 is in the books? Or you want me to do the 200 is in the books? You do it. Do you take us out? Do you remember how to do it? I, I, I think <laughs> that is episode 200 of Mitch Unfiltered in the books.